The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The gods of ancient Egypt. Who were early Egyptian people worshiping? What a huge Patreon spaces or chosen topic we're diving in today together, Meat Sacks. Taking a tour of ancient Egypt spirituality to learn about gods like Osiris, god of the dead, of the resurrection into a eternal life and the judge of the deceased, Ra, god of the sun, order, kings in the sky, Horus, god of the pharaohs, the protector of the rulers of Egypt. The Egyptians believed that the pharaoh was the living Horus, actually. Also looking into the gods Newt, Scoots, Old Klondike, Hoingy Boingy, Pooty, and Handy Randy. Okay, that first one is real, not sure about the rest. There are more gods in the Egyptian pantheon than there are pages in most other ancient religions' holy books. There are between 1,500 and 2,000 individual gods. Holy holiness! The Egyptians built some of the most impressive structures that have ever existed, including what was at one time the tallest building on earth, the Pyramid of Giza, the Great Pyramid of Giza, as part of their worship of these ancient gods. We won't even come close to talking about all the gods today, but we will break down who the most popular gods were, and we'll dig into some of the more obscure and super weird ones. And there are some super weird ones. Get ready to meet a strange and terrifying bloodthirsty baboon. We'll also dig into an ancient story or two that lets us take a peek into ancient Egyptians' lives. And of course, there will be even more to this episode. Excited to explore the enigmatic empire that spanned almost 30 centuries and learn about the gods that unified its various eras on another strange and theistic edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, Sarsaparilla Whisperer, disciple of Nimrod, guy about to rock a sweet mustache for the summer, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, protect us Bojangles and soothe us Triple M. 
Which one of those uh, times of gods has been worshipped by the ancient Egyptians? You'll find out soon. Re recording in the Suck Dungeon again in CDA. Another beautiful summer's day here. Uh, damn, man. Coeur d'Alene looks good in the summer. Uh, with the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Logan and Kate Keith, and Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, all floating around somewhere near. Sorry to hear about recent COVID case spikes, everyone. Uh, I'm still hoping for a viral fizzle. Come on, Raw! Burn this shit off the earth already. Man, fuck viruses. Uh, moving some announcements to the back of the show going forward, but I do want to give one final reminder that we donated $5,800 to ALZ.org this month to help end Alzheimer's and dementia. Link in the episode description. Uh, also, Space Lizards, update your app. Update the Time Suck app. Get ready for some trivia. The new trivia game starts next week. Listen to the Secret Suck to learn how to play. Monthly prizes await those of you who know the most about the suck. Looking forward to playing that new weekly game with you. The app update should be uh, out now to play the to get ready to play the trivia. And the uh, first trivia round will start Monday, July 6th, 3 p.m. Pacific. New rounds start the first Monday of every month. Now let's get to Godden. Hail Nimrod. Like many ancient societies, the Egyptians were polytheistic. Now what does that mean? It means they both wore and worship polyester. Oh, greatest God, polyester. Give us thou cheap, shiny suits and affordable women's work pants. Oh, magnificent polyester. Provide us with an economical and durable, if not environment-friendly sofa for us to comfortably sit upon and sing your praises. That's not what it means. I know you know that. Uh, polytheistic means that the Egyptians worship more than one God. The Egyptians worship way more than one God. Uh, they worship a ton of gods. Gods whose roles varied from city to city, era to era, Sometimes slightly, sometimes substantially. Gods whose names sometimes changed. Gods who sometimes merged with other gods. They had different gods assigned to different forces of nature, different gods assigned to different animals, to celestial bodies, to life, death, various abilities, different jobs, and much more. Never, never a god shortage in ancient Egypt. Uh, the gods of ancient Egypt were part of a national story that unified the people of Egypt. The pharaohs were said to have directly descended from the gods and also be gods or goddesses themselves, placing the leaders of Egypt at the very center of ancient Egyptian religion. Nice. I wonder how many world leaders would love to get away with that shit today. I can think of a few who would uh, love to literally be worshipped. Uh, many of the gods played important roles in the afterlife. A strong belief in the afterlife was a major part of the Egyptian religion. The Egyptians believed wholeheartedly that death in this world was not the end, but merely the beginning of one's eternal journey. They believed that they would live on eternally, in a heavily detailed afterlife, if they led a virtuous life here on earth. For the virtuous, death was merely a transition to another realm where if justified by the gods, one would live forever in a paradise known as the Field of Reeds. The Field of Reeds, sometimes called the Field of Offerings, was a mirror image of one's life on earth. Once an Egyptian arrived at the Field of Reeds, their soul would find everything thought to have been lost at death. Your home would be there, just as you'd left it, as well as all the loved ones who had passed on before you, even your favorite dog or cat, other pets would be there. The tree you enjoyed sitting under, the stream you used to walk by, it's there. You know, the, uh, you get to live eternally in the presence of the gods. Good incentive to try and get your shit together in this world. How badly would that suck if you didn't do that well for yourself in this world, but you were deemed worthy of an afterlife, right? Like what if, what if your house was a dump and you hated your dog? Couldn't stand your spouse, lived in the worst part of town, way out in the sandy desert. The best chair you had had splinters in it. Your favorite tree didn't even have leaves. You suffer from a variety of chronic and strange health problems like being afflicted by some weird kind of fungus. Always left you smelling like garlic and farts. Then you die. 
then you're lucky enough to be deemed worthy to make it to the field of reeds. And then you get there and you're stuck living the same shitty life you're living before. You're like, ah, oh, fuck, great. Ah, oh, my stupid dog that barks his own shadow. Chews up with the sandals all the time. Chews up sandals till he throws up every day. He's here. Awesome. Can't wait to sink some slivers in my eternal ass. Sit in that piece of shit chair my mother-in-law who hates me gave me under that dead palm tree behind my one-room shithole shed of a house. Thank you, gods. I am so happy to be here in heaven. Uh, at the very core, the Egyptian religion was preparing for this afterlife and transferring your soul to the underworld. The importance placed on life after death is probably best illustrated by the epic grandeur of the pyramids themselves. The pyramids being monuments to the pharaohs, giant tombs whose very form represented the physical body emerging from the earth and ascending up towards the light of the sun. The Egyptians worshipped a lot of different gods, but the most important always seemed to represent the sun. Pharaoh's man, now they had some sweet pads waiting for them in the field of reeds. Lots of comfy chairs. Probably tons of cool-ass dogs in their, you know, heaven house pyramids. To reach the field of reeds, one had to pass through trial by Osiris, Lord of the Underworld, Judge of the Dead, in the Hall of Truth also known as the Hall of Two Truths. And this trial involved the weighing of one's heart against the feather of truth. A person's soul was thought to be immortal, an eternal being whose stay on earth was only one part of a much larger and grander journey. The soul was said to consist of nine separate parts. Kot. The kot was the physical body. Pretty straightforward. Okay. The ka was one's double form, one's spiritual body, a spiritual copy of your physical form. The ka comparable to the Christian soul. Earthly death occurs when the ka leaves the cot. Okay, still follow. Uh, the ba was the roaming physical essence of the soul, symbolized by a human-headed bird, which could speed between earth and heaven. It's fucking a little weird. I think I got it. Okay, your bird soul. Okay, fine. The shuit was the shadow self. Some Egyptians had a shadow box among their funerary items so that the shuit had a place to inhabit. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the soul is described as leaving the tomb of the deceased during the day in the form of a shadow. Sweet. Shadow people. So that's what they are. Fragments of Egyptian souls. Okay. The auk was the immortal transformed self. The auk was a magical combination of the elements ba and ka, which represented the enlightened immortal being after death. The magical unification of ba and ka would only be possible if the correct funerary rites were performed after death. You got to get your spells fucking tip top. Got to get the mummy wrap just right. The Ock did not stay with the cot as many other elements of the soul did. It lived amongst the stars with the gods that would did return to the body on occasion if necessary. It was a representation of the intellect, will, and intentions of a person. The Ock was also the aspect of the soul which could reconnect through loved ones by appearing to them in their dreams. All right, dream self? A little weird, not as crazy as shadow self maybe. I, I think I kind of still follow all this. The Sahu and the Sechem are two additional aspects of the Ock. As soon as a soul has been deemed worthy of entering the afterlife, the Sahu would separate from all other forms of the soul. Much like modern ideas about ghosts, the Sahu was said to haunt those who had wronged a person in life and protect those who the soul had loved. Just as the Auk could appear in a person's dreams, the Sahu could appear to a person. Okay, great. Egyptian souls, all fucking broken up, responsible for shadow people, nightmares, ghosts, and more. Sweet. Uh, not much is known about the Sekum, but it was considered a kind of life energy of the soul. Maybe like a chi. I don't know. Maybe like a third eye or something. The ab was the heart, the source of good and evil. Ancient Egyptians saw the heart as the home of human emotion. It was also considered the center of thought, will, and intention. This meant the ab was a very important part of the soul. Ren was one secret name, another part of the soul. Ancient Egyptians were given a name at birth, which was kept secret to everyone but the gods. 
This name is considered an extremely important and powerful part of the soul with the ability to destroy a person and their soul permanently if discovered. Throughout life, an, uh, an individual was known only by a nickname so that no one would, able, would be able to learn their true name, their true Ren, and gain the powers it contained or the chance and knowledge needed to destroy it. As long as the Ren still existed, a soul had the power to keep on surviving. As long as embalming was correctly completed, don't mess it up, priest, and the mummification was successful, the Ren meant a person and their soul would exist for eternity. Hmm, wonder what my Ren is. Wonder what my, what my secret name is. I hope it's not Dick Cobbler or Skidmark or something. Where I'd be a fucking bummer. You know, Skidmark, Skidmark? God damn, really? That's my secret name? All right, okay. Uh, the Egyptian religion is very complex. Uh, when you dig into all the details, complicated souls, complicated gods, uh, a lot of different gods, you know, uh, to help people uh, live the best lives they could on earth, gods to help prevent crops from failing, gods to help uh, babies from dying, gods to help, you know, protect people from disease, protect people from foreign armies, lots and lots of gods, complicated, you know, souls, but at its core, uh, pretty simple. Like many modern people, ancient Egyptians wanted to live on in some ideal form after their mortal death, right? That's, that's, that's mostly what it was about. It's just about being protected during life, and then living on afterlife. Uh, all the mummies, all the tombs, all the pyramids, all created to serve this hope of attaining eternal life. Now back to the soul for just a bit. All nine of these soul aspects were part of one's earthly existence and at death, the Auk with the Sahu and the Sechim appeared before Osiris in the Hall of Truth and in the presence of the 42 judges to have one's heart, one's ob weighed on a golden scale against the white feather of truth. The ancient Egyptians recognized that when the soul first awoke in the afterlife, it would be disoriented might not remember its life on earth, its death, or what to do next in order to help the soul continue on its journey. Artists and scribes would create paintings and texts related to one's life on the walls of one's tomb, now known as pyramid texts, which then developed into coffin texts and into the famous Egyptian Book of the Dead. So interesting to me that they, a lot of those hieroglyphics in these tombs were put so like when you woke up after you were dead, you wouldn't be like, well, fucking now where do I go? I don't know. Well, the hell, how, who the hell am I? I think I'm, think I'm skin marked, but I'm not totally sure. Can't remember. Oh, okay. All right. There's pictures. Follies. Oh, right. Okay. Almost like arrows. Like walk this way to go to your next, you know, appointment. <laughs> have, your, have your heart weighed. Uh, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it's recorded that after death, the soul would be met by the god Anubis or uh, Anubis. There we go. Anubis, who would lead it from its final resting place to the Hall of Truth. Images depict a queue of souls standing in the hall. Won't wait to join in this line, you know, and then you'd stand in the line, wait at judgment. That's kind of weird too. Uh, you, you finally die, you know, you're like, oh, okay, God, well, man, I'm, I'm back alive. Okay, I'm now following this little part of the pyramid and I walk over here and then you're like, oh, fucking son of a bitch. There's like 40,000 people in this line. It's gonna take me a couple hundred years just to have my heart weighed. Uh, images depict, uh, yeah, there's of souls. So you, you wait there while waiting. One would be attended to by goddesses such as uh, Kebhet, daughter of Anubis, personification of cool, refreshing water. So, you know, you get like a drink of water while you wait in line, have your heart weighed. Cuba will be joined by others such as uh, Nephthesis, Circuit, and comforting the souls, providing for them. When it came one's turn, Anubis would lead the soul to stand before Osiris and the scribe of the gods Thoth in front of the golden scales. Uh, the goddess uh, Ma'at, personification of the cultural value of Ma'at, harmony and balance, would also be present. And these would be uh, surrounded by 42 judges that consult with the gods on one's eternal fate. Right? You have a whole panel of people being like, I don't know if he thought he was kind of a dick. No, no, I thought he was a pretty good guy. I don't know. He seemed like he looked at me weird. No, no, no. He just was confused. He's just waking up. And then they were like, okay, okay. We made our judgment. Uh, the soul would recite the negative confessions, which one needed to be able to claim honestly that one had not committed certain sins. These confessions sometimes began with the prayer. I have not learned the things which are not. 
meaning that the soul strove in life to devote itself to matters of lasting importance rather than trivial matters of everyday life. There was no single set of negative confessions, uh, just as there was no set list of sins, which would apply to everyone. This is kind of unique to the Egyptian religion. Like a military commander would have a different list of sins that would apply to, to them than like a judge would or a baker would. And I, I like that. You know, thou shalt not kill works a lot better for a baker than it does for a soldier. Not fair to judge both the same way. Very different duties. Uh, the negative declarations always beginning with I have not or I did not following the opening prayer went to assure Osiris of the soul's purity and ended in fact with the statement, I am pure, repeated a number of times. I am pure. I, I'm pure. I'm clear. I'm pure. Uh, each sin listed was thought to have disrupted one's harmony and balance while one lived and separated the person from their purpose on earth as ordained by the gods. In claiming purity of the soul, one was asserting that one's heart was not weighed down with sin. It was not the soul's claim to purity which would win over Osiris, however, but instead the weight of the soul's heart. So you did all this stuff, you made your claim, 42 people judged you, uh, whatever, 42 gods, but then still, you gotta, still got to weigh your heart. So I don't, I, honestly, when I read this, I don't know why you had to go through all this before weighing the heart. Because you could make your claims, everybody could be like, nah, he fucking looks good to me. And then your heart gets put on the scale and the heart too heavy. Well, you're fucking done. So it seems like they should just skip to the heart way, but whatever. The heart of the soul handed over to Osiris, who places it on a golden scale, balances it against this white feather of Ma'at, feather of truth. If the soul's heart is lighter than the feather, then the gods confer with the 42 judges. Oh, okay. And if they agree that the soul is justified, they got to confer, I guess, again. <laughs> and the person could pass on towards the bliss of the field of reeds. All right, so it is a mix. So, you, you know, you got to have your heart weighed and you got to get the... The, the jury's approval, the jury of the gods. Uh, according to some ancient texts, part of this is confusing because, and we'll go into this more as we go through this episode, uh, but these these legends were written in a variety of different ways in a variety of different tombs. And so then you kind of kind of like cobble them together and like, well, this is kind of how it was. But they were, it was never, you know, like it was just such a long empire, lasted for so many years and it was fragmented at different points. And, uh, and it was a long time ago, you know, and uh, the story's, get a little bit uh, messed around with. According to some ancient texts, the soul would then embark on a dangerous journey, right? So if you make it, all this, your heart's the right weight, then you make it through this, uh, to the afterlife, but it's still dangerous. You gotta go through some weird shit to reach paradise. You need a copy of the Egyptian Book of the Dead to guide you. You gotta have the right spells to recite if you run into trouble. So that's kind of a bummer. You know, you can, you can make it throughout all this. Your heart's the right weight. And then you're like, all right, go to your heaven. But hey, careful, there's some fucking alleys. There's some creatures in some of the alleys along the way. And you got to have the right spells. Or they'll, they'll fucking eat you. I'm like, what? I just passed so many tests. I'm like, I know. I know. We don't, listen, we don't make the rules. We kind of do, actually. It's confusing. But anyway, good luck. Good luck making it to heaven through this. There's a, there's a monster section. Um, <laughs> uh, so according, according to some stories, though, uh, after justification, it was just a short journey from the Hall of Truth to Paradise. So in some of the stories, you got to make it past the monsters. Some of the stories, you get to go kind of right to the field of reeds. So leaves the Hall of Judgment. It's rowed across Lily Lake. Uh, it's, and it's rowed in some stories. There's a sailboat in others. We're going to get too much later in the episode. It's the weirdest fucking sailboat you've ever heard about. Uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But then you make it to the field of raids and then you receive everything, you know, taken by death. But the soul with the heart lighter than the feather of those who had died earlier are waiting along with one's home, one's favorite objects and books, even one's long lost pets. Hopefully again, you have something better than a splinter chair and a shitty sandal eating dog waiting to greet you. Should the heart prove heavier than the feather? Let's talk about that. Oh, that's not good. Gets thrown to the floor. Right? If your heart's too heavy, if it tips the scales, they just fucking grab it and they're like, ugh, gross heart. And they throw it on the floor. 
And uh, on the floor is where it gets grabbed by uh, a menti, also known as Amet, usually known as Amet, god with the face of a crocodile, front of a leopard, back of a rhinoceros, known as the gobbler. And he's known as the gobbler because he, he gobbles your heart up. So if it's too heavy, he gets eaten by a monster. And then, uh, and then you just, uh, you know, you don't exist anymore. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second too. What happens when you get your heart eaten? Uh, before digging further into Egyptian spirituality, let's get let's get a better feel for old timey Egypt in general. Uh, the ancient land of Egypt, the preeminent civilization in the Mediterranean until 332 BCE, even though it's over ninety uh, percent desert, which is uh, very impressive. They were really really good at maximizing the less than ten percent of their land that isn't essentially a big unforgiving pile of hot sand, heat strokes, and sweaty butts. Uh, more than 68% of Egypt is flat, sand and gravel covered, uh, kind of barren wasteland. Uh, more than 22% of the additional land is just slightly less shitty than what I just described. But that almost 10%, nothing but stay golden. Stay gold, pony boy. Uh, the sliver of gold land around the shores of the Nile would uh, become home to a giant and powerful empire that encompassed more than 3,000 years of history and culture from its unification around 3100 BCE to the death of Cleopatra the seventh and 30 BCE. And there's a roughly additional, an additional 3,000 years of Egyptian history that existed before the unification. An empire as famous as it is mysterious, an empire of several millennia worth of invasions, architectural marvels, scientific and medical discoveries, so much more. Discoveries made over the course of nine major periods shaped the people and the land in ways we're still trying to comprehend. Let's talk, let's talk a bit more about that stay gold sliver of land. The agriculturally and geographically good part of Egypt was historically very, very good. Thanks to the world's longest, maybe second longest uh, river running through it. The sweet, sweet Nile. Sure, the Nile has crocodiles known to get up to 1,200 pounds who'd love to uh, eat you and your entire family. But the Nile also helped grow a lot of life-giving uh, giving crops. Like many other prosperous ancient cultures, ancient Egypt was built around a major life-sustaining river. The Nile provided the water to irrigate crops like emmer, a wheat grain, chickpeas, lentils, lettuce, onions, garlic, sesame, corn, barley, flax, and more. Even helped grow important uh, papyrus, a word I constantly mispronounced when times like began, no surprise there. Uh, also an, an old school Egyptian paper they used to record their legends and communication in written form so they didn't have to chisel all their hieroglyphics into stone. Uh, they're now also a highway for important transportation and trade. The wheel wasn't invented until sometime around 3500 BCE. So imagine how important early river travel was in the many, many centuries prior to this date back before the Egyptian kingdom was unified, but when a lot of people lived along the Nile, right? So important back then to be based near a river, especially a giant, relatively slow moving and mighty river like the Nile. Without the Nile, the ancient massive Egyptian cities would have never developed when they did and how they did. Uh, with big farms came the ability for early Egyptian peoples to transition from primitive nomadic hunter-gatherer societies to stationary living. Various groups settled along the banks of the mighty river into early cities, they began to trade with one another, exchange both goods and ideas, a new concept, civilization, was born here as it had been born just a tick earlier in Mesopotamia, the cradle of life just under 15 kilometers, 1,500 kilometers, just over 900 miles uh, to the northeast, right? So now religion's developing in both places. The Fertile Crescent of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers of Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, the Indus River in ancient India, the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers of China, all early civilization enablers, just like the Nile. The Nile was uh, the biggest of these rivers and is. Uh, flows north for about 6,650 kilometers, over 4,000 miles from the African Great Lakes, part of the Nile beginning in Lake Victoria in modern-day Tanzania, another part of the Nile beginning near Lake Tana in present-day Ethiopia. For these big lakes, Lake Victoria, 
the second largest freshwater lake in the world by surface area, just under 27,000 square miles, the Nile flows through the massive Sahara Desert before emptying into the Mediterranean Sea. It now moves through 11 countries, drains 3.3 million square kilometers, 1.3 million miles, about 10% of the African continent's total landmass out into the sea. The Nile is generally credited as being the world's longest river by sources like the uh, United Nations and Guinness Book of World Records, although some scientists who went on an Amazon expedition in 2007 say uh, the Amazon might be the longest, 65 miles longer than the Nile. Amazon, the world's largest river by volume, holds about 20% of the Earth's fresh water. Uh, Nile, though, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, big, big river, one of the biggest in the world. It actually is uh, 95th by drainage volume. It's not even close to the Amazon, but part of that is because it's uh, such a good river. It's uh, you know used heavily for irrigation purposes. There's more than one Nile. The lower Nile historically flooded every summer, and this mystified early Egyptians since it almost never rained where they lived. They had no idea their mighty river was being fed by much rainier places far to the south they didn't know about. The Nile had three, uh, has three main tributaries, the White Nile, the Blue Nile, and Atbara. The White Nile is the longest, originating in Lake Victoria. And uh, that originates, or Lake Victoria is 2,100 miles south of where the river dumps into the Mediterranean, 3,400 kilometers south. Ancient Egyptians revered the Nile as a source of life. It was a river, a uh, pretty uh, coolly shrouded mystery for centuries. Expeditions repeatedly failed to find its source with Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, continuously foiled by a large swampy region called the Sud in what's now South Sudan. The inability to discover this river's origin led it to being portrayed as a god with a hidden face in classical Greek and Roman art. As it winds into Egypt, the Nile transforms a swath of Sahara Desert, the largest hot desert on earth, into incredibly fertile farmland. This is what makes the Nile so crazy to me. Uh, it's what adds this uh, mystique of uh, this river with the Egyptians. The Amazon, beyond impressive, so is the Congo, the Mississippi, the Yangtze River, but those rivers don't flow through mile after mile after mile of the largest, hottest, sandiest desert on earth. The contrast of sand and soil is so dramatic it's visible from space. A long green oasis can be seen hugging the river amid bleakly tan landscape around it. Very magical looking. Giant river of life passing through this giant desert of death. Thanks to its seasonal influx of water from Ethiopia, the lower Nile historically soaks the desert soil of Egypt in the summer. At least it did before there was a lot of dams on it. Uh, in its floodplain, not just with water, but with all the sediment it collected along the way, sediment composed of mainly black silt eroded by the Blue Nile and the Atbara from basalt in Ethiopia, or basalt. Uh, those silty floodwaters would surge into Egypt and then dry up and leave behind a miraculous black mud from which many crops would grow. Pretty magical if you lived thousands of years ago. In a consistently dry climate, you don't understand how seasonal flooding and erosion and tributaries work. And then once a year, this awesome river just gets fucking much bigger and then just leaves behind a whole bunch of awesome soil for you to grow your crops with. I'd probably worship it too. Uh, permanent human settlements first began to appear on the Nile's banks, uh, maybe around 6,000 BCE, seven, 8,000 years ago. Uh, by 3550 BCE, these settlements had become the world's first recognizable nation state. A complex and distinct culture quickly developed, and for nearly 3,000 years, Egypt would remain the preeminent nation in the Mediterranean world, fueled by water and the fertile land it continued to receive from the constantly giving Nile. As ancient Egypt grew along the lower Nile, the river played a key role in many of its most important myths featuring its gods. The Milky Way was actually seen by early Egyptians as a celestial mirror of the Nile. The sun god, Ra, believed to drive his ship across this Nile-like constellation. And that's probably more than enough about this river. 
We have plenty, plenty of info about the river now. Let's let's talk about some gods. Uh, ancient Egyptian culture, based around its worship of its gods, since at least uh, 4,000 BCE, roughly, as evidenced by burial practices and tomb paintings. And it remained at the heart of Egyptian culture until a little after 30 BCE, when Cleopatra VII died, last ruler of the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. Following Cleopatra's death, the worship of Egyptian gods began to steadily decline. The gods of Egypt were first slowly replaced by Roman gods, and then the rise of Christianity steadily replaced polytheism in general. When uh, Christian Roman emperors eventually completely outlawed the worship of Egyptian gods and all other gods not part of the Christian triad in the 6th century CE, then it basically just went away completely. When it was practiced, what was the Egyptian religion about? How was it structured? The ancient Egyptians believed that their gods had prevailed over the forces of chaos during the creation of the world to form their kingdom, and now they relied upon humanity's help to maintain it. Similar to the Romans and Greeks, similar to American Indian and Norse mythology, similar to the mythology, I'm sure, of so many other ancient peoples whose religions I'm unfamiliar with, the people of ancient Egypt believed that the gods very much were alive and in contact with the world of living men and women. If Egypt was to remain strong, if you were to have a life worth living, you must please the gods. You must pay them tributes, build them temples, worship their golden likenesses, honor them with rituals and with riches. If you were a pharaoh, you gave them some of your riches. For it was because of the gods' favor that you had those riches. You gave them some of your land for new temples, land you wouldn't have if you fell out of favor with the gods. If you were a farmer, you gave them some of your crop so you could have a good crop the next harvest. If you fished, you gave them some of your catch, and so on and so forth. Man, I bet the temple of ha- uh, Hamehit, goddess of fishing, I bet it smelled like shit. What if they? Uh, what if they decided to, 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 you know, to give her fish theme gifts? like gold jewelry designed in the shape of fish instead of actual fish after a while, right? Maybe after a couple of really good fishing days when the weather hit around 110 degrees in the, in the fish temple, they were like, you know what, maybe we should rethink leaving raw fish out uh, in the temple for the goddess. I don't know. Two, two of our priestesses just passed out from the smell. Uh, ancient Egypt had lots of priestesses, lots of priests catering to all their many, many gods. Different from most religions of today, the clergy of ancient Egypt did not preach. They did not interpret scripture, uh, conduct weekly services. Their sole responsibility was to care for the God of their particular temple. They weren't out doing missionary work. Uh, similar to say the Roman gods in this way, the Roman gods would, you know, like have a temple for the God of Saturn and one for Venus. Uh, same for the Egyptians. Uh, both men and women could and would be in the Egyptian clergy. They performed the same functions, received the same pay. Women were often priestesses of female deities while men served male gods, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, ancient Egypt does seem less patriarchal than many other ancient societies. High priests were chosen by the king who was considered the highest priest of Egypt, the mediator between the people and their gods. The Pharaoh received his power from Horus, one of the most powerful Egyptian gods. We'll learn more about Horus in a bit. You know, they were considered, like I mentioned earlier, like the living embodiment of Horus. The position of Pharaoh had political as well as religious authority. You know, when did Egyptian uh, priests first begin taking care of their temples? Uh, at least 5,000 years ago. The priesthood was already established by the time of the early dynastic period, uh, when that kicked off in Egypt around 2920 BCE. It continued to develop in the Old Kingdom as the great mortuary complexes like Giza and Saqqara were being constructed in the 27th century BCE, so long ago. Throughout Egypt's history, the priesthood, aka the servants of the gods, would serve a vital role in maintaining religious belief and tradition while at the same time consistently challenging the authority of the king by amassing wealth and power, which at times would rival that of the crown. Uh, there was a hierarchy in the priesthood from the high priest, the first servant of God at the top, to the wab that were called priests at the bottom. The Wa priests carried out the essential but fairly mundane tasks of taking care of the temple complex. 
you know, performing whatever function they were called upon for, uh, helping to prepare for festivals, keeping it clean, whatever. The high priest would take care of their God and maybe the following way, at least at one time, duties would change over the course of many centuries of Egyptian life. In the morning, the high priest would break the seal and light a torch to walk with God. They'd say prayers, light incense, wash the statue. Some statues made out of solid gold. They'd put fresh clothing and jewels on the statue, place various offerings, which usually included food and drink near the statue. You know, got to feed that God, son. You don't want some weak, skinny, hangry God living on tomb dust. You don't want your sad ass worshiping that God. Good luck getting that mopey, whiny douche of a God to give you some good crops or help you win some wars. <laughs> no, you want a jacked as fuck God living on camel steak and dolphin burgers. That kind of God, all dolphin burger strong. That God does some damage. That God's all like, nom, 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 enemy smited. Nom, nom, crops tasty. Oh, give me a more dolphin burger. I don't think they, I don't think they ate dolphin burgers. I don't think anyone's ever had a dolphin burger that I know of. Uh, I can't, I can't ever recall hearing about that. Probably delicious though. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're so cute. They gotta be kind of tasty, right? Uh, let's get away from the sad topic of dolphin burgers. Uh, high priests also be responsible for ensuring that people, you know, uh, saying hymns of praise to the gods of their temple or the God and the temple musicians would play their hearts out and they would have, and these people would have kind of like priest, uh, titles too. They would, they would have singers and musicians specifically assigned to come perform for this statue in this temple, in this tomb. How weird is that, right? These like these statues would, would, would get concerts because people thought that made them happy. Bunch of musicians, that's what, what a weird audience to play for, right? Just a statue up there, just fucking looking blank straight ahead and you're playing your heart out. Because, you know, you got to play for the gods. Can't have some sad God all bummed out because he doesn't get to hear his favorite tunes. Uh, speaking of favorite tunes, uh, time for a real quick sponsor break. Uh, sign up between now and August 1st to reserve your spot in Andrew Hole's A-Hole Air Banjo Academy's Zoom Master Course, Plinking and Planking in the Pyramid. Five one-hour lessons designed to teach you how to air pluck to traditional Egyptian temple music uh, good enough to please any of the sandy gods of ancient Egypt. All right, get ready for this. Mm-hmm. How do, you, how do you play with this? How do you pick up an air banjo and play along with this? Well, since I've taken a lot of these courses, just like this, check it out. Feel the reeds, here I come. Tell me you just didn't feel like you were inside an Egyptian backwoods tomb thousands of years ago. Maybe a bit more? Okay, sure, I can do that. All right, so you know, that feels pretty good, pretty good. Are, are you not soothed, Amit the Gobbler? You too could play something that beautiful. You could honor the gods in the comfort and safety of your own home. You don't have to buy an instrument. With A-Hole Air Banjo Academy, you are the A-Hole. You are the instrument. So sign up today and get 10% off of uh, five one-hour lessons, normally priced at $25,000. Now only $22,500. Uh, so there you go. Uh, if you're a new listener and you're really confused, don't even worry about it. Just forget, forget about it. Forget about the, <laughs> come on. Forget about the last couple of minutes. Don't even, don't even think it happened. I'm back. Uh, back to Egyptian priests and priestess rituals after that very legitimate and important sponsor ad. At the end of the day, the high priest, back out of the shrine after all the music was played, sweep away his footprints as he left, 
seal the sacred area again. You know, I get those footprints out of there. God's, God's hate dirty meat sack footprints. Everyone knows that. Get your nasty toe dust out of the temple. Uh, the Egyptians believed the high priest played a vital role in providing for the needs of the gods and that if their duties were neglected, problems would arise. And due to the importance of their role in society, the high priests were well compensated. High priests and priestesses often came from royalty. Pharaohs appointed them and they tended to appoint family members uh, within particularly large temples. The power of the priests was considerable since the temples ended up owning a lot of valuable land gifted by pharaohs trying to please the gods with their generosity. The temple treasuries became very wealthy due to all the tributes paid by nobles and pharaohs. Priests also controlled the gods' cult statues, which functioned as oracles, this is kind of weird, uh, whose pronouncements would only be interpreted by the priests. And they could pass judgment in legal cases. They could influence things like royal succession. They could do all kinds of all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Be able to speak for the gods. You know, you put your ear up, some old statue. Like, what, was, what was that? Hold on, hold on. And then you get to tell everybody what the god just told you, supposedly. I'm, I'm sure that never got abused. I'm sure that role was never, ever abused. Just like no religious figures ever abused the role of speaking for God now. Uh, no, Amun does not want you to take that incredibly sexy woman for your wife, minor noble. No, no, sir. Uh-uh. I was just talking to him. He just told me some stuff. He doesn't want you to touch her curvy hips or place your hands on her small waist or stare into her sultry eyes or run your fingers through her silky hair or kiss her full lips or cup her supple breast. Hail Lucifina. I mean, praise uh, Amun. Even though I already have a wife, Lucifina, I, I, I mean, Amun wants me to have your lady as well for myself. So saith God, don't get mad at me. I know you're bummed. That's just the way the God cookie crumbles, my friend. Nothing I can do. Don't, don't kill the messenger. I am merely an empty vessel filled with his word when he deems his word spoken. And right now his word is to give me, uh, give me your wife's sweet ass, okay? Amun says, uh, me and your lady must make many children together. And what was that? What was that, Amun? What did you say? Oh, he, he says that you're supposed to raise the kids, though. Uh-huh. That's what Amon says, not me. So there you go. I make them, you raise them. Uh, these priests, depend on the temple they were in charge of and how in favor that God was in their lifetime, which gods uh, were worshipped the most and seen as the most powerful, would vary you know, over time. Uh, these priests can become incredibly powerful, or priestesses. Archaeologists have found more statues of certain priests than they have of certain pharaohs. At one time, the priesthood was a hereditary position where fathers groom their sons as successors in the same way a king would a prince. But then when those priests you know, got a little too powerful, the hereditary succession practice was abolished and the pharaohs then started to choose the priests so they could pick people who would be the most loyal to them, hopefully not crave too much power. Uh, in between the high priests and priestesses uh, uh, and the low priests and the priestesses were a, a wide array of other clergy who performed all kinds of duties in service to the gods. There was kitchen staff, janitors, porters, scribes, basically anyone who worked in the temple complex who had any association with the God was in some form a priest or priestess. You know, like the singers and musicians, like I said, they had to be some kind of priest and priestess. Uh, so now that we know a little bit about how the gods are worshipped, let's learn a little bit how uh, about how the Egyptian gods first showed up. You know, like most gods, their stories began with some creation mythology. Egyptologists found the, these stories in a pyramid tomb going back to around 2750 BCE. Egyptians believed that their gods created our world and our universe out of darkness and swirling chaos. Uh, we've been able to learn about quite a few cultures creation myths over the years. Uh, for the, from the super rapey beginnings of the Greek gods to the origins of the Norse gods, who did weird shit like ride Sleipnir, Odin's fucked up eight-legged spider horse. Uh, here's a summary of one of the, uh, of the ancient Egyptians' creation legends. This story written on a tomb wall, different than other creation narratives found on other tomb walls in other regions and from other eras. I state that to let you know uh, why God descriptions from this story won't always perfectly match up with the backstories of some of the gods we're going to explore later in this episode. 
That is one of the things. That, there's more variation amongst the roles and the stories behind the Egyptian gods than there is like with the Norse gods and with the uh, um, uh, the gods of Greece, the gods of Rome. Mostly just because it's 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 older. These stories they went on for a longer period of time. They started off in an earlier era, and uh, the stories are a little, little more fragmented. But here we go. Here here's one common creation legend. Once there was nothing but endless dark water without form or purpose. Existing within this void was Heka, the god of magic, who waited the moment of creation. Out of this watery silence, new rose the primordial. Ah, <laughs> out of this watery silence, new rose the primordial, primordial hill. My God, known as the Ben Ben, upon which stood the great god Autumn. Autumn looked upon the nothingness and recognized his aloneness, and so, through the agency of magic, he mated with his own shadow to give birth to two children, Shu, god of air, whom Autumn spat out, and Tefnut, goddess of moisture, who Autumn vomited out. Okay? So, so God fucked his shadow, and then he spit out a son, and then he threw up a daughter. All right. Okay, fine. Shu, old spit son, then gave the early world the principles of life, while Tefnut, old puke princess, contributed the principles of order. <laughs> I just picture being an ancient person hearing this and be like, fucking what? What did you say about the shadow fucking? Okay. Uh, leaving their father on the Ben Ben, they set out to establish the world. In time, Autumn became concerned because his children were gone so long. And so then he removed his eye. All right. Kind of like Odin. That's pretty weird. They both did that. Uh, sent it in search of them. While his eye was gone, Autumn sat alone on the hill in the midst of chaos and contemplated eternity. But he also contemplated how much it hurt to rip his fucking eye out. But he also thought uh, quite a bit uh, about how weird it was to fuck a shadow, uh, which randomly makes me think of Tom Cruise for some reason. He just he just seems to me like someone so self-absorbed, he, he would jump at the chance to fuck himself if he's given the opportunity. Some hot cruise on cruise action. Why am I talking about that? Uh, Shu and Tefnut return with the Eye of Autumn, later associated with the Eye of Ra and the all-seeing Eye, Illuminati, Eye of Providence. Uh, their father, grateful for their safe return, sheds tears of joy from both eyes. Because now they're both back in his godhead. These tears dripping into the dark, fertile earth of the Ben Ben gives birth to men and women. Okay, so that's how we got here. We started off as tears. I guess that's better than starting off as, you know, shit or piss or something. Uh, these early creatures had nowhere to live, though. So Shu and Tefnut made it and gave birth to, <laughs> to Gib, the earth, and Newt, the sky. I had no idea the earth and sky came from incest. No wonder the world's so crazy. Uh, Geb and Newt... Though brother and sister fell deeply in love and were inseparable. Of course that happened. There's one thing I learned in the Cleopatra episode back in January of 2019. It was that ancient Egyptians loved incest. Uh, Autumn found their behavior unacceptable. Good. And pushed Newt away from Geb, high into the heavens. The two lovers were forever, forever able to see each other, but were not able to touch. Newt, though, was already pregnant by Geb and eventually gave birth to Osiris. Isis, Set, Nephthys, uh, Horus, the five Egyptian gods most recognized as the earliest or at least as the most familiar representations of older god figures. Osiris showed himself a thoughtful and ju uh, judicious god and was given rule of the world by Autumn, who then went off to attend to his own affairs. That's such a weird <laughs> story moment to be. Wait, what? And then after creating the world, God had, uh, he had some shit to do. He had some other stuff to come, uh, came up. He had an, uh, a social obligation he forgot about when he's making the world and stuff. So he had to Run off to, uh, to a conference or something. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> so, the, so the one guy leaves. 
After uh, Autumn bounces in the creation legend, Osiris administers the world efficiently, co-ruling with his sister wife, Isis. Ugh. He decides uh, where the trees are going to grow, where the water is going to flow. He creates the land of Egypt in perfection along with the Nile River, providing for the needs of the people. You'd think he would have given it like a, a wider swath of good land. He's like, ah, let me make sure and get this right. Uh, 90% of this area, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave pretty shitty. It's going to be fucking sand and scorpions. But I'm going to give this one little tiny chunk. It's going to have a nice river. And uh, yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, it says, uh, in all things, he acted in accordance with the principle of Mahat Harmony, honored his father and siblings by keeping all things in a harmonious balance. Okay, well, he did, he, he did a little more with at least one sibling than just keep things in balance, whatever. Uh, his brother Set became envious of this creation and also of Osiris, his power and glory. Uh, he and his brother's exact measurements, or he had his brother's exact measurements taken in secret. <laughs> and then he ordered an elaborate chest precisely to those specifications. And then when the chest was completed, set through a great banquet, which he invited Osiris and 72 other people to. This is very complicated. This is very convoluted. Where the, where the hell did all these people suddenly come from? Where did he find a chess maker? Why, why, is he, why is he making a chess? Why is he getting his measurements taken in secret? Just a second ago, there was like less than 10 gods. And people just been planted or molded out of clay or some shit. Then everything's changed. Okay, now they have a party. At the end of the party, he offers the great chest as a gift <laughs> to the person who could best fit inside it. What kind of weird party is this? Hey guys, look at this chest I had made. Pretty cool chest, right? You want it? Just, that's cool. Yeah, I'll give it to you. You just got to climb in. Whoever fits the best gets to have chess because that's the new party game I just came up with. It's the fucking worst party game of all time. Uh, Osiris fits perfectly because he was secretly measured. And once he's inside this chess coffin, Set slams a lid on him and he throws him into the Nile River and he tells everyone that Osiris is dead. Now he's ruling. <laughs> Serves Osiris right. How fucking dumb was he to get in that chest? His brother, his brother was like, hey, hey man, just get in here. Get in here and see the chest. See if you can fit in there. See if, just come on, come on, do it. It's fun. And Osiris is like, okay, I guess I get in a chest. Me like getting in chest. And then slam and throw in the Nile River. Uh, Isis refuses to believe that her, that her dumb husband is dead. And she goes looking for him. And then she finds the coffin inside a tree. Uh, it, uh, Byblos. He's in, what? He's inside a tree now. Okay. Well, whatever. Uh, the people of the land are, are glad to help her retrieve the coffin from the tree. And for this, Isis blesses them. And they later become the principal exporters of papyrus in Egypt. So that's how they became the papyrus people. It's because they, they helped her out. She brought the body back to Egypt and set about gathering the herbs, making potions, which could bring Osiris back to life, leaving her sister, Nephthys, to guard over the place while she's, uh, you know, working on this. During this time, Set starts to worry that Isis might locate Osiris' body, find a way to bring him back to life. because She's very powerful, knowledgeable in these matters. Upon finding her gone, he asks Nephthys where she is. And the goddess answers uh, uh, some nonsense and he knows that she's lying. And then he's able to get from her where Osiris' body is actually hidden. And he goes there and he tears the coffin apart. And then he fucking cuts that son of a bitch into 42 pieces. And then he flings these pieces of the Osiris, these fragments all over the place, all over Egypt. So that Isis is never going to be able to find him. And then, uh, and then he returns to his throne. He's like, God, did it. Cut him up, son of, son of a bitch. Uh, when Isis returns, finds the coffin destroyed, the body gone, she falls to her knees in despair and weeps. Nephthys, feeling guilty for having betrayed her secret, tells Isis what had happened, offers to help find the parts of Osiris. So now they go look for all these 42 parts. Whenever they find a little part, they bury it on the spot they find it, and they build a shrine to protect it from Set. And in this way, this is how the 42 provinces of ancient Egypt were established by these goddesses. Okay, I see why you did that now. So they finally assemble the, the body. 
Uh, except for the penis. Except for the wing. Uh, the penis has been eaten by a fish. Mm-hmm. What? How did this powerful God, so powerful that 42 different pieces of him could establish different provinces, how did he have such a, a tiny penis that a fish was able to eat it? Incest. That's how. If you haven't heard, incest really fuck you up. Poor God had one of those little incest weens we've all heard so much about. I've never heard anything about an incest ween. Uh, Isis then creates a replacement ween and mates with her husband. <laughs> so she makes a, she can't find his ween. She can't, you know, totally get him back together, but she can make a new ween that's kind of him, but not attached to him. And then she uses this, kind of a dildo really, to become pregnant with her son, Horus. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Osiris has been brought back to life successfully, uh, by, but he's, you know, incomplete. You know, he can't rule the world like he had before. Uh, he instead descends to the underworld because he's sad about not having a penis anymore, uh, not having his original penis. And then he becomes the righteous judge and ruler of the land of the dead. So that's how he ends up, you know, in the underworld. Trauma. He had a real rough go of it. And he was like, fuck the field of reeds. I'm taking my new dick. And I'm going down to Egyptian hell. Horus, sometimes known as Horus the Younger, to differentiate from Horus, the brother of Osiris, raised in secret to protect him from Set, and then having grown to manhood, challenges his uncle for the rule of his father's former kingdom, the battle rages for 80 years until Horus defeats Set, banishes him from Egypt to dwell in the arid deserts. Horus then rules with his mother Isis and aunt uh, Nephthys as his counselors and harmony is again restored to the land. So, there's, <laughs> so there you go. It's pretty simple, really. Pretty straightforward. That's how everything you've ever seen or thought about uh, got here, you dummy. Okay? <laughs> I get it. I'm not confused at all. That would make a great movie. Uh, okay. Although there are, as I said, many different versions of this myth, the one element that remains pretty standard in all of them is the concept of harmony, which is uh, disrupted and must be restored. This is a big theme in Egyptian religion. This principle of ma'at was at the heart of all Egyptian mythology. Every myth in some form or another relies upon this value to inform it. Uh, interesting to note that no matter what era the tales were first composed in, the principle of harmonious balance of mu'at, the heart of heart of all of them. Uh, the repulsing of a pep, an evil dragon-like creature that lurked on the horizon was a popular Egyptian tale. Each evening at sunset, it tried to stop the passage of the setting sun through the underworld. If the sky was clear, it indicated an easy passage. A blood-red sunset showed a desperate battle between the forces of good and evil. But the sun always was the victor. There was always a new dawn, the balance of day and night. Never destroyed. Always harmony. Uh, the Egyptians told tales of how the vegetation that died with the harvest was reborn when the grain sprouted. Just as the sun god died each evening was reborn the next morning. Always balance. Everything in the universe was thought to be maintained in constant balance without a terminus. And as human beings were a part of that universe, they too participated in this eternal balance. Ma'at was made possible by this underlying force which existed before creation and made all aspects of life possible. It was known as Heka. Heka was the magical power which enabled the gods to perform their duties and sustained all life. Heka isn't quite strong enough to repair a penis eaten by some fish, but it can do almost anything else. Heka also personified in the god Heka also allowed for the soul to pass from earthly existence to the afterlife. Uh, like I said earlier, when the soul left the body at death, it was thought to appear in the hall of truth to stand before Osiris for judgment. The heart of the deceased weighed on a golden scale against the white feather of Ma'at. The heart found to be lighter than the feather of the soul allowed to move on to the field of reeds. A uh, heart heavier than the feather, right? That's when it gets thrown on the floor and that fucking monster, the gobbler, Amit, the devourer, uh, you know, eats it and you cease to exist. Uh, sounds terrible. Despite my joking around earlier about Osiris and the underworld, the Egyptian underworld, uh, not really hell as understood by modern day monothe uh, monotheistic religions. As one historian writes, the Egyptians feared eternal darkness 
and unconsciousness in the afterlife. They weren't worried about being eternally tortured. Uh, they just didn't want to cease to exist because that's that's what would happen if Amit ate your heart. Existence being a part of the universal journey which began with autumn and the Ben-Ben, the primordial hill, was the natural state of a soul and the thought of being eternally separated from that journey of non-existence was more terrifying to ancient Egyptians than any underworld filled with torment could ever be, any land of eternal pain. Because you know, at least in those lands, one still existed. So it was either heaven or just pff, you're gone. Uh, interesting fear, uh, by the way, too. I've never really fe- uh, worried about ceasing to exist. Like if that's indeed my fate, you know, I'll never consciously know that if I cease to exist. You ever think about that? You know, like I'll never be sad about it. You'll never be disappointed and fall into despair because you just won't be able to think about anything. When you can't think, you can't reflect. When you can't reflect, you can't regret or feel sorrow or despair. There's no there's no pain in sleep. I find that kind of comforting, actually. All, all that being said, I mean, ideally, I would like to move on to some other cool world. That'd be pretty sweet. Like the ancient Egyptians, you know, that'd be fun if my wife and kids and dogs are in it. You know, I, I like my life here. It's not perfect, but I wouldn't mind repeating it. I, I can argue with Lindsay here and there for forever. Uh, nice afterlife concept, Egyptians. Now that we know a little bit about the Egyptian religion and have been briefly introduced to some of its oldest gods, let's learn a lot more about their vast pantheon of deities. This is the most fun part. Let's meet a bunch of their stranger gods, learn a bit about some of those uh, OG gods we've already been introduced to. Records have been found for somewhere again between 1,500, 2,000 separate gods in ancient Egypt. More gods may yet be discovered. Won't come close to touching them all today. Uh, let's let's investigate some of the more prominent gods to start with. We'll start by uh, revisiting Amun. Amun or Ammon, means invisible one, usually depicted as a bearded man wearing a headdress with a double plume, or after the new kingdom as a ram-headed man, or simply as just a ram, just the great god of Dodge trucks. Uh, Despite this creation myth, uh, the one you just heard, Autumn, actually a minor god in parts of Egypt for years, before that particular creation myth was written, and then he rose in power through the centuries to become the god of universal power, eventually described as the king of the gods. That's a dope description. The king of the gods. Imagine if that was your job title. No job title trumps that. No one's more impressed by any other title during the office tour. Uh, here's a, here, this is Wendy King's office. She's our CFO, our uh, chief financial officer. Uh, her office is more than twice the size of the uh, offices of any of the senior VPs. Spectacular panoramic view of the city below. Over here, we have our CEO, Jamal Johnson's office. Has his own private balcony, bathroom, kitchenette, private elevator. Uh, uh, that down there, that's Lucy Martinez's office. She's our COO, Chief Operations Officer. Uh, not as nice of an office as Jamal's, but she does have her own private workout space. Uh, meets with a personal trainer, you know, paid for by the company. Has a sitting and a standing desk. Could be worse. Now, if you look out this window and you look across this courtyard here, uh, you see that other building? That, that giant pyramid-shaped structure, easily twice as big as this entire office building we're standing in right now. Uh, that entire building is the office and temple of Dan Cummins, king of the gods! Bow down! Avert your eyes, filthy peasant! You're not worthy of resting your gaze upon its glorious jewel-encrusted walls! So, yeah, pretty sweet, king of the gods. Uh, each Egyptian city had a patron god, and Amun, king of the gods, was the patron for Thebes. For several millennia, uh, relatively unimportant during the old kingdom, but then, yeah, rose to dominance during the middle of new kingdoms when Thebes became the seat of the pharaohs. At one point, he was combined with the sun god, Ra, to elevate his importance. And that's why he's sometimes referred to as Amun-Ra. Uh, let me explain his ascension uh, to becoming top god a bit bit further. Amun first mentioned around 2400 BCE as a local god of Thebes, 
not even the supreme god of Thebes at that time. He's like a, he's like a sad boy god. He's a lowly chump of a god. The main god was Montu, god of war. The creator god was Ra. Montu, a fierce warrior who helped Thebes grow its might and influence. Montu could have kicked the shit out of Autumn at any time. Amun, somewhat associated with protecting the king, but mostly associated with fertility. Amun was part of the uh, Ogda'od, eight gods who represented the primordial elements of creation at the time, but not a significant part. Amun uh, also represented hiddenness at this time. He was mysterious. And later, theological writers would fill in his mystery with power. A series of priests decided that he was actually much more than a fertility deity. Nah, he's not. He's not just that. Uh, what was that? What was that statue? What are you say? Oh, 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 he's the true king of the gods. That statue just told me. By the 17th century BCE, he'd become part of a triad of the most important gods, along with the, his consort Mut, ancient Egyptian for mother and son Konso, the moon god. And then when Pharaoh uh, almost won, defeated the uh, Hyksos, a nomadic people of somewhat unknown origin, possibly Asian who ruled Northern Egypt at the time, the Pharaoh attributed his victory to Amun and he linked him to the well-known sun god Ra. Amos, uh, the first 16th century BCE Pharaoh, founder of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, classified as the first dynasty of the new kingdom of Egypt. Amun, also known as the hidden one, uh, you know, since he wasn't linked to any definable natural phenomena or principle, he was malleable enough to fit with any attribute one wished to add to him. And in this case, the mysterious aspect of life that which makes life what it is was linked to this, uh, uh, his, you know, the sun, Ra, Amun, then became Amun-Ra, creator of the universe, king of the gods. And then after all of this was established, the creation myth you heard earlier was written. All right, now let's talk about uh, Anubis. Anubis, dog folk. Anubis has to be one of the most visibly recognizable gods of ancient Egypt. Uh, Anubis, the Egyptian god of mummification and the afterlife, as well as the patron god of lost souls and the helpless, uh, one of the oldest gods of Egypt, most likely developed from a, a much older jackal god, Wepwawet. Uh, who knows uh, who Wepwawet morphed out? That's a fucking tough, tough word. There's three W's in that word. No, thank you. Uh, Anubis has been around since at least 3150 BCE, if not earlier, depicted as half man and half jackal. And why a jackal? This is interesting. Because during the first dynasty of Egypt, when he became an important god, a period that lasted from 3150 BCE to 2890 BCE, Egypt was preposterously overrun with an animal that looked like modern jackals, actually more closely related to wolves, possibly either the uh, African golden wolf or the Ethiopian wolf, both am animals similar to a coyote in size, a little bigger, but similar, around 25 to 45 pounds in size. Egypt had an estimated 40 to 50 million of these wolves during the first dynasty. These wolves destroyed several Egyptian cities, ate all their crops. And then when the crops ran out, facing starvation, these animals became ex exceptionally aggressive and they stormed the cities. They overpowered local populations. An army of millions of small wolves ate every man, woman, and child in several cities. The famed city of Cairo became a ghost town. Had 300,000 people, right? Eaten by wolves. Uh, you know, who by the time they made it to Cairo, these wolves had figured out how to use chariots, swords, and wore light armor. Armored, sword-wielding, chariot-riding, desert jackal wolves. Such a crazy thought. Uh, and, and obviously that never happened. It's fucking crazy talk. But I love picturing that. Just a literal army of little wolves sacking cities. What a crazy-ass vision that is. Uh, why is Anubis depicted as a jackal-like wolfman? Because at the time, jackals or wolves, sorry to keep mentioning both, for a long time, Egyptologists were certain Egypt had lots of jackals. And this recently was like, nah, I think it's wolves actually. Uh, I'll say jackals from now on to make it less confusing. 
So these jackals constantly getting into old cemeteries and scavenging the dead, not making that up. That was a real problem 5,000 years ago, right? People would bury their dead in these cemeteries and these fucking jackals come just dig up the graves and <laughs> just tear their bodies apart. Like, I'm sure that was very upsetting. You imagine that, damn scavengers? Imagine, you know, you, you go back to the cemetery to pay your respects to grandpa. You find out that a bunch of wild dogs dug him up. They're eating his body. I don't know. I'm guessing you wouldn't like that. Just, no, bad jackal wolf. Like, oh, Popeye's foot, you son of a bitch. Oh, no. Why'd you have to run off with his head, you asshole? Uh, Anubis usually depicted as having dark black skin. Why? Because it symbolized decay, as well as the fertile soil of the Nile River Valley. Uh, this powerful black canine god became the protector of the dead, and you had to pay tribute to him to keep those damn jackals from carrying off Nana's legs. He worked with the goddess Isis from the creation myth, mother of Horus, to mummify the body of Isis's husband brother, Osiris, lord of the dead and rebirth, son of Newt and Geb, grandson of Autumn, god of creation, uh, after Osiris was killed by his brother Set. Set, the god of deserts, storms, envy, disorder, violence, chaos, foreigners. Uh, Anubis's role in rituals of the dead was to hold the scales on which a dead human's heart was weighed against the feather of truth. Uh, and like I said earlier, right, if the heart weighed less than the feather, you know, then Anubis would take this dead soul to Osiris in the underworld where it would live forever. Uh, but if the person didn't leave a virtuous life, you know, Amit the devourer gobbled it up. Uh, many spells and rituals were carried out over bodies after death designed to lighten one's heart and prevent this. <laughs> Just imagine some ancient priest did a bunch of hocus pocus, some old tomb assuring someone's, you know, grieving family that their loved one's heart was going to be super light. No, you don't you worry a bit. I'm going to use an old trick my dad taught me. Get that heart nice and light. Got to sprinkle a little paprika on it. Put a little fennel. People will tell you about the fennel. Now, you can never go too heavy with the fennel. Uh, going to set it in the sun for a bit. Dry it out just a little bit more. And then I'm going to roll it around some cumin. Don't you tell anybody about me rolling around that heart and some cumin. That's a, that's a family secret. I'm going to eating this heart. Oh, no, sir. That old dog rascal. Hasn't eaten any of the hearts I've put my mumbo jumbo on for over five years. You can check my records. Uh, although Anubis does not play a major role in many myths, his popularity was immense. And as with many Egyptian deities, he survived on into other periods through association with the gods of other lands. The Greeks would associate him with their god Hermes, who guided the dead to the afterlife. That's kind of cool about a lot of the Egyptian gods. They morphed and found new life in other religions after uh, the ancient religions of Egypt, you know, went away. Now let's talk about that gobbler, Amit. Amit, kind of a goddess, more of just a monster, sometimes described as a demoness. None of Amit's titles make her sound like a fun, cool person to hang out with. She was known as the devourer of the dead, the eater of hearts, and the great of death. The great of death, that's some weird wording. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Beware, it is the great of death. What? What did you say? Uh, Amit was a chimera with the head of a crocodile, forelimbs of a lion, hind limbs of a, hip hind limbs of a hippopotamus, all lumped into a kind of human shape. Amit, the personification of three man-eating predators Egyptians feared the most. Other than eating the hearts of, uh, you know, people that led unvirtuous lives that Amit uh, fed her, or that Anubis fed her, Amit doesn't seem to have done a whole lot. She's kind of a one-dimensional goddess, but a bit of a one-trick deity. Never worshipped, just feared. Uh, I feel like she didn't get invited to a lot of parties thrown by the other gods. She's probably a real bummer to hang out with. Just, I get it. You eat people's hearts. We all get it, Amit. Literally all you ever talk about, you're either eating hearts or you're talking about eating hearts. Get a different hobby for fuck's sake. It's exhausting listening to all your heart talk. Let's move on to a more robust God now. Uh, Aten. 
Traditionally considered an aspect of the sun god Ra, Aten was at one time the sun disk itself. The word Aten appears in the Old Kingdom as a noun, meaning disk, which referred to anything flat and circular. The sun was called the disk of the day, where Ra was thought to reside. And that is why Aten was the ancient god of both disc golf and ultimate frisbee. Now, Aten was actually briefly the god of everything. Solar Aten was extensively worshipped as a god in the reign of, um, oh boy, Amenhotep III, when he was depicted as a falcon-headed man like Ra. In the reign of Amenhotep III's successor, Amenhotep IV, the Aten became the central god of the Egyptian state religion in the 14th century BCE. Amenhotep IV actually changed his name to Aken Aten, meaning beloved of Aten. And not only was Aten elevated to supreme god status, but briefly, he was the only god you could worship. A new royal city called Armana uh, was uh, dedicated exclusively to Aten. Uh, a brief moment of monotheism, the type of religion that would take over the world centuries later, was introduced. When Aken Aten died, spiritual life then reverted back to revolving around a polytheistic religion. Uh, Aken Aten's successor intentionally wiped out all memory of the Pharaoh and raised Armana to the ground. No more monotheism. Ah, you don't tell me. I go, I'll worship about a thousand gods if I want to. You don't get to limit me. Uh, I find the way various Egyptian gods rose and fell in power pretty fascinating. It reminds me of the stock market. You know, like for a period of time, Egypt is all about Aten. Aten's stock is fucking soaring. It's splitting. It's soaring. It's like Tesla recently. You know, it's like, it's like, like Microsoft levels right now. And then a Pharaoh dies. Oh boy. New one comes in and suddenly Aten's stock is like current Nordstrom level. Uh, this is all very different than say like Norse mythology. Like in certain Nordic lands like Iceland, Odin was the top dog even in the earliest Norse sagas. Maybe went by a different name, but seemed to be the same God. You know, much more consistency. Odin still worshiped today actually in the traditional uh, Alsatru religion. I think Odin is uh, always listed amongst the most powerful Nordic gods because prior to the late second century BCE, we don't know who the Norse worshiped. The earliest references to Odin come from when the Romans encountered early Germanic people sometimes around or sometime around 101 BCE. And most of what we know about Odin and the other Norse gods comes from just one document, the 13th century's Prose Edda, an Icelandic work of literature containing the creation and destruction of the world of the Nordic gods, many other aspects of Norse mythology, one document, as opposed to over 60 different ancient Egyptian tombs, many other artifacts with writing on them. I think we also see more fluctuation with Egyptian gods because the earliest depictions of these gods go back over 3,000 years, you know, before the earliest depictions of like Odin, Thor, other Germanic gods who did have different names and slightly different abilities in early accounts compared to, you know, accounts hundreds of years later. Talking about some very old gods today. And the old gods changed as humanity changed around them. And that's still happening today, actually, if you think about it. Think about how much variation exists today regarding Christianity compared to like a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, you know, you worship Jesus the way the Pope told you to worship Jesus. Or there was a real good chance you were labeled a heretic and you're going to lose your life in a very painful way. Now there are more than 200 distinct different Christian bodies in just the United States alone. More than 200. Some estimate worldwide there are over 30,000 different Christian ecclesiastical bodies with their own leaders and brick and mortar houses of worship. All this variety for a religion based on, for the most part, one book. One big collection of books, many of them written, you know, less than 2,000 years ago. By comparison, the Egyptians were much more all over the place because they had no central book letting everyone know what God did this or what God did that. They didn't have priests who preached the agreed upon word of the people, right? And it, and it just lasted a lot longer, their religion. No wonder their uh, stories of their gods changed, uh, you know, quite a bit. Now let's talk about another one of their shifting gods, Bast or Bastet. Ancient Egyptians love kitty cats. 
In fact, the ancient Egyptians are thought by many to have been the first people to truly domesticate cats around 4,000 years ago. Around 8,000 years ago, small wild cats started hanging around Fertile Crescent Farms in the communities of Egypt and Mesopotamia, eating some rodents, you know, eating humans, garbage, table scraps, and eventually these cats started to be tamed. And now millions and millions of people have those early cats, mostly cute and often snobby descendants in their homes. Self-assured little creatures who seem to think they're still gods. Cats were thought by the Egyptians to possess divine energy and were the most revered of their domestic animals. Bastet was the Egyptian cat goddess, OG cat lady, depicted either as a domestic cat or a feline head on a woman's body. It seems she was originally uh, an avenging lioness deity, but then evolved into a goddess of pleasure. Many cats lived in her main temple in the Western Delta, and an immense cemetery of mummified cats was discovered in that area. So I'm sure her temple smelled fucking really good. One gigantic ancient litter box. Sweet. Her temple probably smelled worse than the fish temple. Uh, Bastet was believed to have been able to transform into a regular old human cat. So be nice to your kitty. Could be Bastet. You know, you're telling to get off the table. Or for the majority of her Egyptian life, she was depicted as the daughter of Ra and Isis. She also dated Ptah for a while, god of craftsmen and architects. Ptah and Bastet had a son, Mahas, lion-headed war god. Ptah was an Egyptian creator god who is written about in certain creation mythologies as existing before all other things. And by his will, he thought the world into existence. Ptah was worshipped throughout all of Egypt for a while. His primary cult uh, centers were in Memphis and, uh, oh, yikes, Heliopolis. There we go. He was actually so popular in Egypt, it's said that the name Egypt itself draws uh, derives from a Greek spelling of the name of a temple in Memphis, uh, Hakapatis. <laughs> This word is fucking ridiculous. There was no pronunciation guide for this. The name of this temple is H-W-T-K-A-P-T-H. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, it means the temple of the Ka of Ptah. Okay. In some creation mythology, he's seen as having been more directly in control of creation than either Ra or Autumn, generally depicted as a mummified man with unbound arms holding a staff. Uh, Bastet, one of the rare Egyptian gods that died in her uh, mythology, she eventually had her throat ripped out by Bojangles. Egyptian dog god of power. Dog folk, whooping cat folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't happen. Be kind of cool if it did though. Uh, next up, Geb, uh, father of snakes. We mentioned Geb in the creation myth earlier. Geb was the Egyptian god of the fertile earth and barren desert associated with fertility. Said to have laid the egg from which the sun was hatched. Associated with the goose. <laughs> All right, it's random. Uh, he was known as the great cackler sometimes, and his laughter was uh, thought to cause earthquakes. So he's associated with snakes and geese. Okay. Also mentioned in some pyramid texts is imprisoning the buried dead within his own body. Also associated with vegetation and healing. So many gods. So many guys. I keep thinking it must have been so hard to keep track of all this back in ancient Egypt. But I, but I have to remember, like, we're looking at the entire history of the worship of these gods uh, that span thousands of years. At, at the time, during, you know, one generation's lives, I'm sure it didn't change that much. I'm sure it was kind of agreed upon. If you look at the giant history of any religion or culture, you'll see lots of change, but not probably felt so dramatically for any particular lifespan. Uh, now let's talk about cows. More cows after last week's uh, very disturbing bovine references. Let's talk about the goddess of cows, Hathor. Ola uh, Yahim Kroll from last week, he might've worshiped this god. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Yahim, time for one of today's uh, sponsors. Another one of today's sponsors. Today's Time Slick is brought to you by Kroll's Cafe and Malt Shop. Hello, fellow diner and sexy car lover. This is Jochen Kroll, and I want you to come to my cafe down in Strusselsalkraut. 
We have the finest chocolate malts, the sexiest hamburgers, but mostly people come for the blue light specials. This week we have a nice finger steak surprise. That is, that is really all I can say about it. It's quite chewy, but well worth it. And be sure to bring in the kitties and check out the wonderful children's menu. Bring in the kitties and I will cover the, the happy plates with copious amounts of semen. Our semen brand fry sauce is quite delicious. Rich and creamy recipe made every morning by myself in-house. So come on down to Curl's Cafe, where it is always mostly beef. I promise. Okay, now we're back to the gods. Uh, if you listened to last week's episode, uh, you know exactly how messed up that was. Uh, if not, don't even, don't even worry about it. Don't, don't even worry about it. Uh, before we move on to the gods, actually, time, time for some real sponsors, finally. Uh, real good companies with real good deals uh, that I hope you take advantage of. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back. Back to Hathor. Sexy cow goddess. Uh, wife to Horus, Hathor, goddess of sensual power, was known as the cow goddess, complete with sexy bovine eyes, also the personification of the Milky Way. She would eventually be considered the primeval goddess from whom all others were derived. Hathor came to be regarded as the mother of the sun god Ra, held a prominent place in his barge as it sailed across the night sky into the underworld and rose again at dawn. Although in time, she came to be considered the ultimate personification of kindness and love, she was initially literally a bloodthirsty deity unleashed on mankind to punish humans for their sins. (laughs) Man, I know I keep beating this drum, but the transformation these gods would undergo, so crazy sometimes. I mean, imagine if modern religions did that, like these huge shifts, How, how extra confusing would religion be? You know, no, 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 Satan's, Satan's not that bad at all. Didn't, didn't he get the new Bible? Version 5349? Yeah, Satan used to be the dark Lord who ruled over the fiery pit of eternal flame. <laughs> That's old Satan. New Satan is a God of beer pong, puppies and ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look it up. He doesn't even care about your soul anymore. Now he just wants to pay your puppy, have some ice cream and play a little beer pong. He's really mellowed out. And oh, and you uh, you might want to stop praying to Jesus for salvation. Jesus doesn't care about it anymore. That, no, that, that's old Jesus. <laughs> new Jesus is the God of shotguns and light bondage. Uh-huh. All new Jesus wants to do is shoot some clay pigeons and spank your ass until you yell your safe word. <laughs> Times have really changed. Times have really changed. Uh, I mean, that is basically what happened in Egypt. Maybe not quite that dramatic, but the roles of gods change often and sometimes quite dramatically as various pharaohs claiming to be the offspring of various gods or gods associated with certain cities became more powerful due to that city becoming more prominent due to various priests reinterpreting, reimagining the origins and roles of the gods to what I uh, imagine were their political and financial gain. Uh, Hathor uh, usually depicted as a woman with the head of a cow, ears of a cow, simply in cow form. Mostly was the goddess of women, love, beauty, pleasure, and music for, the, for, her, for her god lifespan. Uh, she was a nice lady with a dark past. 
She was sent to earth by her father, Ra, to punish mankind for their wickedness. But then uh, she went on a bloody killing spree that horrified Ra. And then she calmed down. He stopped her by tricking her to drink beer mixed with mandrake and the blood of the slain. That were so intoxicated, she couldn't, uh, you know, kill anyone anymore. Is she Lucifina? Hail, hail Lucifina? Hail Hather? And then she calmed down and became, uh, you know, all about, you know, pleasure and music and, and beauty. Uh, let's learn some more about Horus now, the son of Osiris and Isis. Horus was the protector and patron of the pharaohs, the god of kingship. Raised by his mother in secret after the death of Osiris and waged an 80-year battle with Set, also known as Seth, a god of desert, storms, envy, disorder, violence, and foreigners, to avenge his father's death and take back the throne of Egypt. And I got to say before I move on, Set, way cooler Egyptian god name than Seth. Seth is such a funny god name to me. The battle of the gods is set to begin. Osiris's death will be avenged. The great Horus, god of kings, will do battle with Seth, great god and son of Randy and Michelle. Seth is just too linked to my brain, to a regular old modern name, to sound cool as a god's name. Uh, Horus typically portrayed as the ideal son to which all sons should aspire to emulate. Horus, the last born of the first five original gods. Also, according to the Egyptian historian Jimmy Dunn, Horus is the most important of the avian deities who takes on so many forms and is depicted so differently in various inscriptions that it is nearly impossible to distinguish the true Horus. Horus is mostly a general term for a great number of falcon deities. Yeah, to make it even more confusing. Uh, let's move on, learn a little bit about uh, Horus's mother, Isis, wife of, of Osiris. Isis uh, brought Horus the hawk, good boy son, hungry man, Salisbury, a steak dinners and let him live in her basement until he was 37. Uh, no, but she is Horus's mother. She was also, as we said before, Osiris's sister. Gross. She was also the sister of Set, a.k.a. Seth, son of Randy and Michelle, and Nephthys. Isis was Egypt's most popular goddess, was worshipped beyond her borders, even had a temple in uh, Roman London, made it all the way to England. She was seen as a celestial wife and mother, also a healer and protector. Isis was worshipped primarily as the goddess of good fortune, sea, and travel. And her popularity spread across the Mediterranean, they just mentioned, you know, spread, you know, all the way to England. Sailors revered her. A festival held every spring became associated with Isis. was later known across the Roman world as the Navigium uh, Isid, Isidus. Uh, many cities that depended on maritime trade, such as Pompeii, looked to Isis to defend them from the wrath of capricious Neptune. One of the best preserved temples of Isis actually found in Pompeii, built in the first century CE. Its frescoes depict Isis as Roman worshipers would have imagined her in Hellenized form rather than having Egyptian qualities. In Roman cities, she was leaked with Fortuna, goddess of luck, Venus, goddess of love. The first and century, uh, second century CE writer Plutarch likened her to Persephone, consort of Hades, lord of the underworld. All these gods getting all mingled. Egypt and Rome, Greece, her viral uh, spread around Europe began with the conquest of Alexander the Great. When Alexander, king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedon, conquered Egypt in 332 BCE, the worship of Isis would flourish and expand beyond Egypt. Rather than censor Egyptian's traditional religion, Alexander embraced it. While visiting the city of Memphis, Alexander made sacrifices to Apis, an Egyptian bull god, also associated with Osiris, and connected the deity's power to his own reign. Following Alexander's death in 323 uh, BCE, one of his generals, Ptolemy I, uh, took Ptolemy I Soter, took control of Egypt, continued the practice of religious tolerance. His dynasty, the so-called Ptolemies, uh, where we learned about in the Cleopatra suck, so much incest, uh, would continue to unite the new Macedon elite with the local Egyptian population through the adoption of the Egyptian faith. 
Under Ptolemaic rule, uh, aspects of Osiris and Apis combined with traits of Greek gods, including Zeus and Hades, to create a syncretic deity, Serapis. His association with the underworld and therefore with Osiris helped the framers of the new Ptolemaic cult settle on Isis as Serapis' as consorts. They'd have, they'd have gods get married to each other, right? One Egyptian god, one, one Greek god, they'd mingle them all up. Their center, a center of worship was in Alexandria, a major commercial center for the Ptolemies. To Alexandrian merchants, Isis and Serapis became associated with prosperity, in addition to the afterlife, healing, and fertility. Uh, most often represented as a beautiful woman wearing a sheath dress and either the hieroglyphic sign of the throne or a solar disc and a cow's horn or, and cow's horns uh, resting upon her head. Hail, Lucifina! Occasionally, she was represented as a scorpion, a bird, a sow, uh, or as a cow. They love their cows. Uh, less hail, Lucifina. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Isis said to have retrieved and reassembled the body of her husband, Osiris, after he was tricked and killed by his brother, Set, and his body strewn to the four corners of the earth. And then she built him a new wean. And uh, when she couldn't find his old one, she then impregnated herself with this new wean to give birth to Horus. And she was the goddess of life, the winds, the heavens, magic, and beer, uh, which partially does explain why she was so popular. Good to be the goddess of beer. Easier to go viral and spread around Europe. If you're the beautiful goddess of magic, beer, heaven, Naval protection, you know, as opposed to being like the homely goddess of uh, taxes, prune juice, and I don't know, fucking cow poop. Now on to the goddess Newt, spelled nut, said Newt. Newt was the sky goddess and is depicted as holding up the sky on her back, often depicted as a woman arched over the earth god Geb, sometimes depicted as a celestial cow. The man, they couldn't, couldn't get over their cows. I feel like the ancient Egyptians loved cows as almost as much as old uh, Yakim Kroll loved cows. Uh, her body, blue, covered in stars. Newt became pregnant with five children and Ra forbade her from giving birth during the official calendar year. The ancient Egyptian calendar consisted of only 360 days a year, 12 months to 30 days, 24 hours within those days. She asked for some help from Thoth, god of the moon, scripture, science, messenger, and recorder of the deities, master of knowledge, patron of scribes. Uh, it has been said that Thoth was secretly in love with Newt, didn't hesitate when she asked him for his assistance. Thoth was able to play dice with the moon, granted Newt five extra calendar days in order for her to give birth to her five children. Osiris, Isis, Set, or Seth, son of Randy and Michelle, uh, Nephthys, and Horus the Elder. Newt swallows the setting sun each evening, gives birth to him each morning, often depicted on the ceiling of tombs and inside of coffin lids. Now a bit more on, 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 uh, on Osiris. Uh, we mentioned he became the god of the dead after he was killed by his brother Set, a.k.a. Seth, son of Randy and Michelle, uh, and, and then he became responsible for judging the dead. Osiris, not just the ancient Egyptian god of the dead, but the god of resurrection into eternal life, ruler, protector, and judge of the deceased. And before all that, god of the Pharaoh, a uh, role taken over by his son Horus. Osiris, usually illustrated as looking like uh, the Pharaohs, wearing an ATF crown with ram's horns, carrying a crook and flail, lower body usually depicted being mummified, face is either blue, color of death, uh, black, the color of fertile earth, or green, the color of resurrection. Real quick, let's explain this crook and flail a bit. Uh, what are those, you may be asking? Knowing the original function of the crook and flail helps us see how they were used as symbols representing roles of the pharaoh. The crook was known as the heka in Egyptian, originated from the staff known as awit. Shepherds used it to protect their sheep. The crook represented the pharaoh's role as the shepherd for the people of Egypt. The flail was known as the nekak uh, in Egyptian. Nekaka, I think. Uh, it was a rod with three strands of beads attached to the top. 
Although historians cannot agree exactly what this was used for, there are two primary interpretations. The first is that it was a weapon used to defend the flock of sheep. In this interpretation, the flail represented the Pharaoh's responsibility to establish the order through punishment, if necessary, essential to sustaining society. Second interpretation, second interpretation is that the flail was used as an agricultural tool to thresh grain. In this interpretation, the flail represented the Pharaoh's role in providing for the people of Egypt, protecting land that could grow food for people. Together, the crook and flail uh, used to represent the two most important roles of the Pharaoh. You got to protect the people, got to guide them, and you got you to have them, you know, make sure they have land to, to grow their crops. Uh, and check out this little Osiris uh, time suck mythology connection. I thought this was super cool. Osiris became one of the most revered gods in Egypt and even throughout the civilized world in the millennia before the appearance of Christianity. His origins still remain pretty obscure. Ancient Egyptians, according to some historians, would uh, emphatically argue that he was once a flesh and blood man before he died and became a god. And when he was a man, he was none other than Emerkar, known as Nimrod in the book of Genesis, who ruled over the first super kingdom in history in the ancient Sumerian city of Uruk, founded around 4000 BCE. Uh, and Merkar was a legendary king listed as the builder of Uruk, uh, said to have reigned anywhere from 420 to 900 years. So was our Nimrod, god of time suck, once known as in Merkar, also as Osiris. Was our mighty space Sasquatch the size of a galaxy with the head of a chupacabra, flaming suns for eyes, Mighty Nimrod riding his magical black unicorn through the multiverse. Was he once Osiris, Egyptian god of the dead? Hail Nimrod. Hail Osiris. Hail in Merkar. Maybe the best known uh, Egyptian god by people today is Ra. Ra, uh, the Egyptian sun god, ruler of everything. Associated with Horus often, uh, the falcon god, depicted as a man with a falcon's head and a sun disc on a, or around his cranium. Ra associated with death as he passed through the underworld each night where he would defeat the allies of chaos. Like I said earlier, when Amun rose to prominence, he was fused with Ra, became Amun-Ra. Sounds like, sounds like, makes me want to say Ramen. And he became Ramen Noodle, God of the Noodle. Uh, sometimes Ra was also merged with Horus and became uh, Ra <laughs> Horakti, Ra who was Horus of the Two Horizons. A little complicated. Before the rise of Amun, Ra, like Ptah at times, was seen as the principal creator and the king of the gods. OG king of the gods. Original sun god. Ra represented in a variety of forms. Most usual form was a man with the head of a falcon and a solar disc on top and a coiled serpent around the disc. Other common forms are a man with the head of a beetle, a man with the head of a ram. Ra also pictured as a full-bodied ram, beetle, phoenix, heron, serpent, bull, cat, lion, these old desert gods, man, lots of rebranding, lots of rebranding, lots of committees probably like, no, no, no we got to give them a new look. People are fucking tired of the heron. Yeah, heron isn't strong enough. Got to make him a snake again. Maybe a beetle, maybe a beetle snake, maybe a beetle juice, beetle juice, beetle juice. Uh, Ra was most commonly featured with the ram's head in the underworld in this form. Ra is described as being the ram of the West or the ram in charge of his harem. Some literature, Ra is also described as an aging king with golden flesh, silver bones, and hair of lapis lazuli. Uh, Ra also, uh, Lapis Lazuli, I think, I can't remember. I should have done a pronunciation guide for that one. I thought I had it. On the written page, it looked good. Now I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I know it means blue. I know it's like some kind of blue stone thing. Uh, Ra, saw, yeah, Ra also the father of Bastet, the cat god. Had it with Isis. He's uh, Hathor, the cow lady's dad. <laughs> Sekhmet, another daughter of Ra. Sekhmet, a warrior goddess, as well as the goddess of healing. Depicted as a lioness. 
Seen as the protector of the pharaohs, led them in warfare upon death, Sekhmet continued to protect them, burying them into the afterlife. Sekhmet also a solar deity, because fucking why not? <laughs> just throw some, throw some other things. I feel like, <laughs> what if there's other things you just get left left out too? Like they had some kind of snack, like some equivalent of like the candy bar. You know, she's a, she's a goddess of the solar, you know, sun and she protects us. Okay, and, and Kit Kats. She's a goddess of Kit Kats and uh, Skittles. Uh, yeah, I love how their roles just overlap. I mean, Imagine if these fuckers work for the same company. Like if, if a company was built <laughs> like, like the Egyptian God kind of setup was built. How confusing would that be? Uh, hey, hey, uh, hey, John, my emails keep bouncing back. Uh, uh, who do I need to talk to in IT to get this fixed? Oh, uh, yeah, you're going to want to talk to uh, uh, Ra. Ra's the head of IT. Or actually, you know what? Amin. Amin's also the head of IT. Or Patal. Uh, Patal is also the uh, head of IT. Uh, Sekhmet, actually, Sekhmet, uh, Osiris, uh, Newt, uh, sometimes they are the heads of IT. Geb, uh, uh, Bastet. Uh, wait a minute, actually, you know what? Geb and Bastet ran IT yesterday, but not today. Uh, I think today they're in charge of snacks. Uh, uh, okay, uh, so if I'm going to find Ra, what does Ra look like? Oh, you can't miss him. Ra's an old king with blue hair, I think. You know what? Actually, yesterday he was a snake. Uh, when I spoke to him last week, he was a beetle. Uh, you know what? Don't even worry about finding him. Uh, I'll help you with your email. I'm I'm also in charge of IT. Let's talk about Seth, son of Randy Michelle a little bit, also known as Set. His story is very interesting. Set was a god of chaos, evil, war, storms, deserts, foreign lands. He was a real bastard god, often depicted as a composite animal reflecting his unnatural and chaotic nature, particularly known for tricking, killing his brother Osiris in the creation legend, sometimes depicted as a red-haired beast with a forked tail and cloven hooves. Man, even back then, redheads getting the short end of the stick. Uh, but that man, cloven hooves, fork and tail. Okay, all right. I see you, Satan. Nice try hiding those hieroglyphics. Uh, actually, some religious historians do think that Satan comes from Set, that Satan is based on Set. There's a book called The Christ Conspiracy. There's other books uh, similar, but the, this is the one I use for the source here. In it, author Dorothy Murdoch argues that the religion of Christianity was created by repackaging and transforming a variety of ancient gods. And regarding Set transforming into Satan in this book, Murdoch wrote, the dualistic concepts of absolute good and evil did not originate with Christianity, but are found long before the Christian era, particularly within Zoroastrianism. Satan is an adaptation of the Persian representative of evil, uh, Araman, the twin brother of God, same as the Egyptian Set, Horus's twin and principal enemy, also known as Sata, S-A-T-A, from whence comes Satan, Horus struggles was set in the exact manner that Jesus battled with Satan with 40 days in the wilderness, among other similarities in some stories, uh, such as the revealing from the mount all the kingdoms of earth. The myth represents the triumph of light over dark or the sun's return to relieve the terror of the night. Horus slash set, God of the two horizons. Hence, Horus was the rising sun and set the time of the sunset. So pretty interesting. Now that he could have been a kind of a OG Satan. Set was a, never an incredibly popular guy for the Egyptians. In fact, uh, most Egyptians loathed Set. Uh, he did have a temple. Some pharaohs would describe themselves as Set in battle. Now let's talk about one more god before we jump into some story time. Uh, let's talk about Thoth. Thoth, another important god, primary god of the moon, god of wisdom, often depicted as a man with the head of an ibis, large bird, holding a scribe's palette and a stylus, also uh, shown as a full ibis, sometimes as a baboon, because why not? Sometimes he's a bird, sometimes he's a, you know, he's a baboon. You got to pay attention. He's uh, most commonly depicted as a man with the head of an ibis or as a seated baboon with or without a lunar disc above his head. Needed, I feel like his branding was a little weak. Thoth is said to have been the creator of magic, inventor of writing, messenger of the gods. 
sometimes wears a lunar crescent on his head, said to own the Book of Wisdom. He's also the god of equilibrium and balance, playing a role in the weighing of the heart against the feather of truth, Ma'at, or Ma'at, after death. Uh, you know, he popped up in that story earlier. Uh, worship of Thoth began in Lower Egypt possibly as far back as 6,000 BCE and then continued through the Ptolemaic period lasting until 30 BCE, the last dynastic era of Egyptian history. And, and that means that Thoth may have had the longest run of being worshipped of any god ever. You know, 6,000 years. He was the patron god of scribes, said that scribes would pour out one drop of ink in, their, in Thoth's honor before they began their daily work. That's such a random, uh, like old, like uh, reference, you know, pouring a drink out for a de departed friend. Uh, Thoth's name was often taken by the Pharaoh kings of Egypt, like uh, Thothmosa, for example, Thothmosa I, born of Thoth. Thoth lends his name to the mythical book of Thoth, believed to be a, a book containing all the knowledge possessed by the gods. And it lies at the bottom of the Nile and it's locked in a series of boxes guarded by serpents. And apparently a variety of pharaohs actually tried to find it over the years, but they couldn't because it's not, you know, it's not fucking real. Might as well look for Sasquatch down at the bottom of the Nile. Uh, now let's take a little break from God descriptions and to help illustrate the ancient faith further, uh, dive into another old story involving the gods. The story comes from a book called Ancient Egyptian Legends written by a British archaeologist named Margaret Alice Murray, published in 1913. She would go on to teach courses on uh, ancient Egyptian history, religion, and language. Actually, she went on to do a lot of shit. Uh, very impressive meat sack. We could do a Margaret Murray suck someday. Uh, not sure what era of ancient history this particular tale comes from. It's called Beer of Heliopolis. Now the majesty of Ra reigned over the two lands. He was the second god king of Egypt. And in his reign, there was peace on earth. And the harvests were so plentiful that to this day, men speak of the good things which happened in the time of Ra. By his own power, he created himself. And he created heaven and earth, gods and men. And he ruled over them all. Man, created himself. That puts the accomplishments of so-called self-made men to shame. Not only did I build my own fortune, motherfucker, I built myself, literally. I built myself up for nothing. I was a speck of dust. And I thought, fuck it. I'm tired of being a speck of dust. Time I become a man. No, even better. Time I become the king of the gods. What were you saying? Uh, so back to the story. For hundreds and hundreds of years, he ruled until he waxed old and men no longer feared him, but laughed and said, look at Ra, he is old. His bones are like silver, his flesh like gold, and his hair like true lapis lazuli, I think. <laughs> then Ra was angry when he heard their jests, their laughter, and he called to those who were in his train, summon hither my daughter, the apple of my eye, and summon also the god Shu and Tefnut, Geb and Nut, and the great god Nun, whose dwelling is in the waters of the sky. Do my bidding secretly, lest men should hear you and see you, for then they would be afraid and hide themselves. I gotta say, I like that he called his crew his train. It's pretty sweet. Wouldn't mind reintroducing that little term. Yo, get the train together. Ready to roll. What am I doing this weekend? Get my fucking train together, fool. Gotta round up my fucking train! Uh, in secret, uh, went the messengers. Very softly, they came to summon the gods and goddesses. Secretly and softly came the gods and goddesses to the mansion of Ra in the hidden place. Not did men see or hear, and they laughed again at Ra, not knowing the punishment that should fall upon them. On each side of the throne came the gods and goddesses, and they bowed before the majesty of Ra with their foreheads to the ground, saying, Speak, that we may hear. Then said Ra to Nun, The great god whose dwelling is in the waters of the sky, O eldest of the gods and all ye ancestor gods, behold the men whom I have created. How they speak against me. 
Tell me what ye would that I should do to them, for verily I will not slay them till I have heard your words. Who the hell's Noon guy? I thought I thought Rob built himself. Who how's how's this guy more inch than him? Let me let me explain really quick who this noon guy is. According to the theology of the uh, o- Ogdaad, uh, aka the Ogdaad of uh, Hermopolis, uh, the universe was formed from the interaction of eight elements instigated by uh, a number of possible gods, including Thoth, Amun, Horus, and Ra, water, nothingness, or invisibility, darkness, and infinity. Water was represented by Noon and uh, Nanet, female form of Noon. Although the Egyptians had many different creation myths, they pretty much all agreed that the universe came from the primordial waters of Noon. And many legends suggested that everything would slip back under these waters at the end of the world. There were no priests or temples devoted specifically to Noon, but he was represented by the sacred lake of each temple. And he was frequently referred to in religious inscriptions. So in this story, the primordial uh, waters of Noon is, is, is like a personified, a human-like God. All right, now we'll get back into it. And Noon, the great God whose dwelling is in the waters of the sky, made answer. My son Ra, greatest of gods, mightiest of kings, thy throne is set fast and thy fear will be upon all the world when thou sendest out thy daughter, the apple of thine eye against those who attack thee. The majesty of Ra spoke again. Lo, they will flee to the deserts and the mountains and hide themselves. If fear falls upon their hearts on account of their jests and laughter and in the deserts and mountains, none can find them. Then said the gods and goddesses, bowing before him with their foreheads on the ground, send forth thy daughter, the apple of thine eye against them. And at once there came the daughter of Ra. Sekhmet is she called, and Hathor, fiercest of the goddesses. See, this is before she was nice. Before she was like a fucking nice, sweet god into like, you know, beauty and having a good time. Like a lion, she rushes on her prey. Slaughter is her delight and her pleasure is in blood. At her father's bidding, she entered the two lands to slay those who rebelled against the majesty of Ra and had turned their rebellion to jest and laughter. In the land of Tamari, she killed him, and on the mountains, which lie to the east and west of the great river, to and fro she hastened, slain all who crossed her path, and before her fled the rebels against Ra. And Ra looked forth upon the earth and cried to his daughter, the apple of his eye, Come in peace, O Hathor! Hast thou done which I gave thee to do? And Hathor laughed as she answered, and her laugh was the terrible voice of the lioness as she tears her prey. By thy life, O Ra, she cried, I will, I work my will upon men and my heart rejoices. And again, right? She's, she's fucking badass here, you know? She's not a sexy cow lady, uh, you know, right at this point. Um, <laughs> uh, making everything even more confusing, sometimes Hathor and Sekhmet are presented as two separate goddesses. Sometimes they're conjoined, possibly into one goddess, uh, more likely two sides of the same goddess coin. So Hathor is the gentle cow side. Sekhmet is a lioness aggressive side. So they're kind of referenced individually in the story, but they're, they're kind of God uh, timeline kept kind of weaving in and out of each other. Uh, oh boy. Um, and, and another reason some of this is confusing is because uh, these, these things aren't fucking written very well. I talked about that in the Wendigo suck concerning American Indian lore. Uh, same goes for all ancient lore. These are the, some of the toughest sucks too. Very fun. But, but challenging because they're not very good stories. Let's just, you know, they're not good. Uh, they were good for the time, but like a lot of old movies don't hold up compared to today's movies. Same with old stories. Like if you got ancient Egyptian storytellers to pop into a time machine and come to today and you didn't let them go to school today or give them enough time to properly absorb modern life or like, you know, read other books and then just told them to go write some more of their books, no one fucking buy them because they'd be super shitty with very confusing characters and weird pro- plot lines. And again, I don't say all this to take a dump on today's subject. I find this all incredibly interesting. I say this to, to let you know that if, if you're confused, yeah, yeah, you should be. This stuff's inherently confusing. 
Uh, For many nights the river ran red and the goddess waited in the blood of men and her feet were red as she strode through the land of Egypt as far as Henin-Seten. Then Ra looked forth upon the earth again and his heart was filled with pity for men, for they had rebelled against him. But none could stop the ruthless goddess, not even the majesty of Ra himself or herself must she cease to slay, for neither gods nor men could compel her. By subtlety alone could this be accomplished. Ra gave command, saying, Call hither to me messengers, who are swift as the blast of the storm wind. And when they were brought, he said, Run to Elephantine. Hasten, go quickly, bring back me the fruit that causes sleep. Be swift, for all this must be accomplished by the day dawn. The messengers hastened, the speed was the speed of a blast of the storm wind. They came to Elephantine, where the great river rages amongst the rocks that bar its passage. They took the fruit that causes sleep, and with the fleetness of the wind, they brought it to Ra. Crimson and scarlet was the fruit, and its juice was the color of man's blood, and the messengers carried it to Heliopolis, city of Ra. Then the women of Heliopolis crushed barley and made beer, and in the beer they mixed the juice of the fruit that causes the sleep, and the beer became the color of blood. Seven thousand measures of beer did they make, and in haste they brewed it, for the night was drawing to a close, and the day was about to break. In haste came the majesty of Ra and all the gods and goddesses who were with him to Heliopolis to inspect the beer. Ra said that it was like human blood, and he said, Very good is this beer. By this I can protect mankind. At the dawning of the day, he gave command, Carry this beer to the place where men and women have been slain, pour it out upon the field before the beauty of the night has passed. So they poured it upon the fields. Four palms deep it lay upon the ground, and its color was the color of blood. In the morning came the fiercest Sekhmet, ready to slay. And as she passed by, she looked to the side and that, watching for her prey, but no living thing did she see. Only the fields that lay four palms deep and the beer that was the color of blood. Then she laughed with a laugh like of a roar of a lioness, for she thought it was the blood she had shed, and she stopped and drank of it. She was a fucking weirdo. Again and again she drank, and she laughed more, for the juice of the fruit that caused her sleep mounted to her brain, made her little cuckoo. No longer could she see to slay by reason of the juice of that fruit. Then the majesty of Ra said to her, Come in peace, O sweet one. And to this day, the maidens of Amu are called sweet ones in remembrance, but probably not like literally to this day, because... If you went over there to Egypt now and you're like, hey, it's sweet ones, I don't think people think it's cool. And the majesty of Ra, the majesty of Ra spoke again to the goddess saying, for thee shall be prepared drinks from the fruits that cause sleep. Every year shall these be made at the great festival of the new year and the number of them shall be according to the number of the priestesses who serve me and to this day. But maybe, I'm not totally sure. On the festival of Hathor, drinks are made of fruits that cause sleep. So probably not. Probably not a lot of roofy drinks being spread around this festival like in 2020, but you get it. According to the number of priestesses of Ra, remembrance of the protection of mankind from the fury of the goddess. What the fuck is this story about? Not sure. <laughs> no one else is either. Couldn't find a single good interpretation out there. It sounds like a big excuse just to have some kind of fucking festival, right? It's like some kind of ancient Coachella or Mardi Gras or something. Uh, just made for a nice little break from our god list. <laughs> now let's get back to that. Somehow, Somehow the gods seem less crazy to me now after that story. They seem to make more sense than they did earlier. Uh, let's talk about some terrifying gods, like Sheshmu. Sheshmu was a lesser god of execution, slaughter, blood, and wine. Yes, wine. Why wine? Because he was known to remove the heads of wrongdoers, and then he'd put them in a wine press, and then he would make some kind of fucking head blood wine. Mm-hmm. Kind of gamey, little notes of terror and copper. And then he would serve this head blood wine to the righteous dead, who probably, you know, would have preferred a different drink to welcome them to the afterlife. Maybe a nice little glass of, I don't know, just regular old grape wine. Whatever, you know, if I'm, if I'm just, if I just died and I'm like, oh man, it's sweet to be alive again in this new place. Can't wait to, you know, grab some, something to drink and some, some food. And somebody hands me some, hey, this is some wine I made uh, some dude's head of crushed. I'm like, oh, 
ah, God, it's not what I was, not what I was expecting, you know? Kind of hoping for something different. Uh, another freaky guy. This is the this is the weirdest guy. I think this is the weirdest one. Is Bobby, B A B I, the bull of the baboons, aka the chief of the baboons. Bobby has a mighty, mighty dick, <laughs> which was actually used as the fucking mast on a ferry that would carry the souls of the dead to the field of reeds. Not kidding. He had a mast dick. When your heart was lighter than a feather, this crazy big dick monkey god. Took you to your heaven home on a sailboat where the sail was fashioned to his baboon boner. That is one unforgettable ride. Uh, why did Bobby have such a big weenus? It's not because the Egyptians probably noticed that baboons had high libidos and they had very kind of visible gen- genitals. Uh, <laughs> because of that, baboon uh, god Bobby became the god of virility in addition to the god of the dead. Uh, and, and actually, why the dead part? Well, for many years, ancient Egyptians thought baboons were deceased ancestors. Seriously. They thought baboons were some kind of weird zombie creature. They'd see a baboon, probably take a real close look at it, peer into its eyes, and say, is that Uncle Jerry looking back at me? What a magical, insane reality they created for themselves to live in. Uh, Bobby was usually portrayed uh, with an erection (laughs) due to an association he was given with the judging of souls since he was some type of uh, undead zombie monster. He was sometimes depicted as using his erect penis as, again, the mast of of the fairy, which would convey the righteous to Aru, a series of islands in the field of reeds. When someone died, the priest in charge of their mummification in preparation for the afterlife uh, would was uh, turned into a, a, a mummy. Like when someone was turned into a mummy, you know, like uh, the priest would throw a little spell in to please Bobby. One spell in an Egyptian funerary text identifies the deceased person's phallus with Bobby, ensuring that the deceased would be able to have sexual intercourse in the afterlife. They had all these rituals for all these gods. So when you died, you know, you're wrapping up your mummy. They're also doing all these little incantations and spells and they would actually think that if they forgot this one spell to Bobby, then you don't get to fuck in the afterlife. Which would suck. You make it to the field of reeds. You now you're young again. You're home. Your wife is young again. She's with you. Nothing but time to fuck. And then you're like, ah, oh, my dick doesn't work because I got, I got the cheap priest. My, my kids went cheap on the priest and they didn't do the right magic baboon spell. <laughs> ah, they did the right monkey spell. And I know baboons aren't monkeys, by the way. They're primates. But monkeys are a funnier word to me. Uh, Bobby was also associated with feasting on entrails. Mm-hmm. Dude loved eating guts almost as much as he loved having a huge dick. He was super cool. Everyone loved it when Bobby showed up at the party. Hide your guts, everybody. Bobby's here. Hope you don't mind seeing a, you know, bunch of dick possibly getting knocked to the ground when he turns around by his big old mass dick. It's classic Bobby. Uh, Bobby also viewed as devouring souls of the unrighteous after they'd been uh, weighed against Mat or Mahat. Uh, he works with Amit, the, the gobbler in some tales. These two shitty monsters would tag team your soul's ass if you didn't live a a righteous life in some stories. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. We have a death match between the soul of a shitty dad, shittier husband, and man always a little light with his temple. Tributes! And now his too heavy heart has to face off against the tag team underworld champions Amit the Gobbler, Lion, Hippopotamus Crocodile Thingy, and Bobby the Big Dick Baboon with a heart on you can sail with and an endless hankering for entrails. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Uh, Bobby and Amit uh, <laughs> also both said to stand by Lake of Fire in some stories. Lake of Fire representing destruction. Interesting that the Egyptians also had a Lake of Fire. Uh, Is all of hell just like some kind of big example of plagiarism? Or does it really exist and has always existed and just been known by different names? Please don't be that. I've told too many scary demonic stories on the Scared to Death podcast. I'm starting to think uh, that it might be that. Uh, Finally, in some tales, Bobby said to be the firstborn son of Osiris. 
Now let's talk about some cannibalism. The streak continues. Three weeks. We've covered a lot of cannibalism over the past two weeks. I was thinking going into this one, maybe the Egyptian gods will take a nice break from eating people. Nope. Uh, meet Mahas. Uh, couldn't find a pronunciation guide for any of his names. So I'm guessing M-A-A-H-E-S. Little known god. Mahis, the flesh-hungry son of the very famous uh, Bastet and Ra. Mahis also spelled Mihos, Mises, Mios, <laughs> Mahis, Mahes. Uh, god associated with war and weather. Two things Egyptians felt were both extremely chaotic. Also associated with uh, the lotus and knives and devouring captives. What an interesting assortment of things he was responsible for. Uh, why did he eat prisoners? No idea. Never said. He was a weird, crazy god. A few words. He liked flowers, knives, storms, and eating people. And he doesn't give two shits if you don't like that. Mahis, the picture is a man with the head of a male lion, sometimes holding a knife and also a bouquet of lotus flowers. He was said to fight Ra's arch enemy, the serpent Apep, during Ra's nightly voyage. Let's meet Apep now and then some other monsters. In Egyptian religion mythology, there were monsters and mythical creatures in addition to gods. You know, some of the figures just didn't quite rise up to the level of actual deity. Instead, they showed up in stories as either symbols of power or ruthlessness or as figures to be invoked as warnings to mischievous children like the monsters we learned about in the Slavic folklore of the Baba Yaga suck and the Germanic monsters from the Grimm's fairy tale suck. Uh, let's meet some Egyptian monsters. And yeah, we'll start with this big-ass snake. Considering that Egypt and the Nile in general loaded with snakes, that would, of course, be a supersized, supernatural son-of-a-bitch and snake in their mythology. And Egypt does have some nasty snakes, like the Egyptian cobra. Extremely venomous. Can reach almost nine feet in length, which is huge for a cobra. Uh, the scariest Egyptian snake ever, though, Apep. Apep, the arch enemy of uh, Ma'at. Opposite of balance, Apep was a giant, stretched 50 feet from head to tail, According to legend, every morning, the Egyptian sun god Ra engaged in a heated battle with Apep, coiled just below the horizon, could only shine his light after vanquishing his foe. What's more, the subterranean movements of Apep said to cause earthquakes. And his violent uh, encounters with Set, a.k.a. Seth, son of Randy and Michelle, Egyptian Satan, god of the desert, uh, spawned terrifying thunderstorms. If he caused earthquakes and tried to eat the sun every day, I, I just feel like he should have been bigger than 50 feet long, Right? I'm not saying it's not impressive, but come on, come on. No 50-foot snake's going to cause earthquakes, eat the sun. Disappointed in Pep. Uh, Pep was sometimes called the enemy of light. All right. Okay, that's a pretty sweet nickname. I'm back to being impressed. Uh, next mythical Egyptian creature is Bennu, bird of fire. Uh, Bennu is likely the ancient source of the phoenix myth, at least according to some authorities. I uh, I definitely have a, uh, a tattoo of this guy in my upper back. Had it for the past 20 years. <laughs> Actually, it's uh, one of my first tattoos and I fucked up. I wanted a phoenix and I didn't look at the phoenix that I wanted and I picked this Egyptian phoenix and everybody thought it was a stork. Looks kind of like a stork, but it is a phoenix. I like the symbolism of it rising up from the ashes. Bennu, the uh, bird god, was a familiar or animal assistant of Ra as well as the animating spirit that powered creation. In one tale, Bennu glides over the primordial waters of Nun, the father of the Egyptian gods. More important for later European history, Bennu associated with the theme of rebirth wound up being immortalized by the Greek historian Herodotus as the phoenix, which he described in 500 BCE as a giant red and gold bird born anew every day like the sun. Additional details about the mythical phoenix, such as its periodic destruction by fire, added later after, uh, you know, after it left Egypt. But some speculation that even the word phoenix uh, is a distant corruption of Bennu. So they do think that the uh, European phoenix came from Egypt. Now for a very old monster you've probably heard of, uh, might be Egyptian, could be even older than, uh, than being ancient Egyptian. The griffin. 
The ultimate origins of the griffin shrouded in mystery, this fearsome beast mentioned in both ancient Persian and ancient Egyptian texts. The oldest known image of a griffin appears on an ancient Egyptian cosmetic palette, an ornate flat piece of metal used by uh, ancient Egyptians to grind up makeup on. Uh, it comes from 3300 BCE. It's called the Four Dogs Palette on display at the Louvre in uh, Paris. Yet another chimera, like Amit, the griffin has the head, wings, and talons of an eagle, all of that grafted onto a lion's body. Since both eagles and lions are hunters, it's clear that the griffin served as a symbol of war. Also did double duty as the king of all mythological monsters in Egypt. On the premise that evolution applies every bit as much to mythical creatures as it does to uh, people made out of flesh and blood, the griffin must be one of the best adapted monsters in the Egyptian pantheon. Still going strong today in the public imagination. Pretty impressive that the griffin was captivating Meatsack's imagination in the 34th century BCE, over 5,000 years ago and then still captivating imaginations today, showing up in places like the Harry Potter universe. Uh, this next monster was uh, has one of the best nicknames I have ever heard in my life. The Harbinger of Chaos. How's there not a band name that or something? That's right up there with King of the Gods. When you give the office tour, you skip the entire floor that the Harbinger of Chaos works on. No, 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 that, that, don't push that button. We're going to be skipping the 13th floor in the uh, tour today. 13 floors off limits for everyone other than Becky Jenkins, our very own harbinger of chaos. Becky also has her own parking spot far from the other spots. Uh, if you value your life as you currently live it, do not go near Becky Jenkins. Uh, the harbinger of chaos is the nickname given to the, sir, uh, it's a t tricky, tricky word, Sir Sir Poppard. <laughs> sir Poppard, it's an unusual example of a mythical creature for which no name has been uh, found in historical records. This is a portmanteau of a uh, serpent and leopard. So you combine serpent and leopard and you get kind of like Sir, Sir Peppered. All we know is the depictions of the creature with the body of a leopard and the head of a snake adorn various Egyptian ornaments uh, from which, uh, and, and when it comes to it, the, you know, the presumed meaning, one classicist guess is as good a, as another's as far as what this thing was. One theory is that the Sir Peppards uh, represented the chaos and barbarism lurking beyond the borders of Egypt during the pre-dynastic period over 5,000 years ago. But since these chimeras also are featured in Mesopotamian art from the same time period. Uh, in pairs with necks entwined, they may have also served as symbols of vitality or masculinity. All right, one last creature. The one that has to be the most associated with Egypt. Also one of the best known not real creatures on earth, the Sphinx. You've most likely heard of the Sphinx. You can probably picture it. But do you know what the hell the Sphinx is? Sphinx is yet another chimera, head of a human, falcon, cat, or ram, body of a lion, uh, typically with the wings of an eagle. Pretty sweet mashup. I like the wings touch. I like the wings. I mean, if you're going to have some animal parts added on, why would you Why would you want wings? Why would you want to fly? And if you're going to have wings, uh, eagle wings are a great way to go. Very powerful. Way better than like chicken or penguin wings. Penguin wings, that would fucking suck. Imagine, imagine <laughs> you make some like wish with a genie or something. I don't know. It's like, it's like your third wish and you just pick wings. You don't get specific enough. And the genie's an asshole. And you end up with penguin wings. It's like, dude, what am I supposed to do with this piece of shit? Penguin wings on my back. The genie's like, I don't know, swim faster. I mean, they're, they're really flippers. They, just, they get called wings. I, I, don't want, I don't want flippers. I want to ask for flippers. Uh, even worse, I don't know why my brain's going this way. I'm in a weird mood, I guess. <laughs> what if you ask for chicken wings? But I guess you didn't specify it, like, but like from like a real live chicken, like the chicken's actual wings. And instead, you just got like two like chicken wings, like from a restaurant covered in barbecue sauce, just two little snacks sticking out of your shoulder blades. Don't even come close to letting you fly. Don't even come close to making a meal. 
And you get grease and sauce all over every fucking shirt you put on, every chair you sit in. Hey, hey, not on the sofa. Dude, do not say your creepy chicken wing ass on my sofa. I just had it reupholstered. I'll stop now. Uh, sphinxes are not exclusively Egyptian. Depictions of these human-headed, lion-bodied beasts have been discovered as far afield as Turkey and Greece. But the great sphinx of Giza in Egypt, by far the most famous sphinx. Uh, two main differences between Egyptian sphinxes and the Greek and Turkish variety. The former invariably have the head of a man and are described as unaggressive and even-tempered, while the latter are often female and have an unpleasant disposition. Uh, a little shade thrown toward the ladies. Other than that, though, all sphinxes serve pretty much the same function to zealously guard treasure. Uh, treasure that can be uh, a or like a re repository of wisdom, not necessarily jewels. And to not allow travelers to pass unless they can solve a clever riddle. That's about it. We don't know what else those big creatures were supposed to do. Uh, the Great Sphinx of Giza, one of the world's largest, oldest statues. Basic facts about it, still subject to debate. We don't even know for sure when it was built, by whom, and for what purpose. It's a, it's a mystery. Uh, what is the riddle of the Egyptian Sphinx? Uh, nothing. The big uh, Egyptian Sphinx didn't have a riddle. Uh, the riddle part comes from Greece. And in Greek legend, the Sphinx devours all travelers who cannot answer its riddle. And the riddle is, what is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening? And then the hero in the story, Oedipus, gives the answer, man, causing the Sphinx's death. Right? Crawls in the morning, walks upright most of its life, and then has a cane as it gets old. Uh, let's end on another myth today. No idea when exactly this one was first told, just like previous myth, uh, the previous myth. Only know it comes from ancient Egypt and that it was first told no earlier than the 6th century BC because that's when the ruler mentioned in the story was in power. Other characters reference also come from the 6th century BCE. So sometime, probably slightly after that. This one could easily be the origin of the Cinderella story. It's known as the girl with the rose red slippers. In the last days of ancient Egypt, not many years before the country was conquered by the Persians. She was ruled by a pharaoh called Amasis, so as to strengthen his country against the threat of invasion by Cyrus of Persia, who was conquering all the known world. He welcomed as many Greeks as wished to trade with or settle in Egypt and gave them a city called Necrotus to be entirely their own. In Necrotus, not far from the mouth of the Nile that flows into the sea at Canopus, there lived a wealthy Greek merchant called Charaxos. His true home was in the island of Lesbos, and the famous poetess Sappho was his sister, but he had spent much of his life trading with Egypt, and in his old age, he settled, he settled at Necrotus. One day he was walking in the marketplace. He saw a great crowd gathered around the place where the slaves were sold. Out of curiosity, he pushed his way into their midst, found that everyone was looking at a beautiful girl who had just been set up on the stone rostrum to be sold. She was obviously a Greek, with white skin and cheeks like blushing roses. And Charaxos caught his breath, for he had never seen anyone so lovely. Consequently, when the bidding began, Charaxos determined to buy her. And being one of the wealthiest merchants in all of Necrotus, he did so without much difficulty. When he had bought the girl, he discovered that her name was Rhodopis. Rhod Rhodopis, yeah, I think it's Rhodopis. Rhodopis, and that she had been carried away by pirates from her home in the north of Greece when she was a child. They had sold her to a rich man who employed many slaves on the island of Samos. And she had grown up there. One of her fellow slaves being an ugly little man called Aesop, who was always kind to her and told her the most entrancing stories and fables about animals and birds and human beings. But when she was grown up, her master wished to make some money out of a beautiful girl, and he had sent her to rich Necrotus to be sold. Taraxos listened to her tale and pitied her deeply. Indeed, very soon he became quite besotted about her. He gave her a lovely house to live in, with a garden in the middle of it, and slave girls to attend on her. 
He heaped her with presents of jewels and beautiful clothes and spoiled her as if she had been his own daughter. One day a strange thing happened as Rhodopis was bathing in the marble-edged pool in her secret garden. The slave girls were holding her clothes and guarding her jeweled girdle and her rose-red slippers of which she was particularly proud while she lazed in the cool water for a summer's day even in the north of Egypt grows very hot about noon. Suddenly, when all seemed quiet and peaceful, an eagle came swooping down out of the clear blue sky, down, straight down, as if to attack the little group by the pool. The slave girls dropped everything they were holding and fled, shrieking to hide amongst the trees and flowers of the garden. And Rodopis rose from the water and stood with her back against the marble fountain at one end of it, gazing with wide, startled eyes. But the eagle paid no attention to any of them. Instead, it swooped right down and picked up one of her rose red slippers in its talons soared up into the air again on great wings, and still carrying the slipper, flew away to the south over the valley of the Nile, so glad it didn't have shitty little penguin wings, or even worse, like little barbecue chicken wings. Rhodopis wept at the loss of her rose-red slipper, feeling sure that she would never see it again, and sorry also to have lost anything that Chiroxos had given to her. This whole story's fucking weird, right? <laughs> I would think after all she's been through. Why would she give a shit about losing a slipper? I mean, she was stolen from her parents, raised a slave, sold to be someone else's slave. Now she has slaves taking care of her, lives in some sweet estate, or wears shit like jeweled girdles, some creepy old man, you know, all into her. He'll do whatever she wants. Fuck your shoe, lady. You don't need to worry about shoes anymore. That's, that's, that's your old life. Just be happy that eagle didn't peck your eyes out or something. Now, weird is it? This is a love story. Uh, yet she was bought by this guy, a guy who, you know, clearly has romantic interest in her, but also sees her as a daughter. What's going on in the story? Different times. Very different times. Back to the story. The eagle seemed to have been sent by the gods, perhaps, perhaps by Horus himself, whose sacred bird he was. For he flew straight up the Nile to Memphis, then swooped down towards the palace. At that hour, Pharaoh Amasis sat in the great courtyard, doing justice to his people and hearing any complaints that they wished to bring. Yeah, I bet he did. It feels like propaganda. Down over the courtyard swooped the eagle and dropped the rose-red slipper of Rhodopis onto the Pharaoh's lap. All right, I think I see where this is going. The people cried out in surprise when they saw this, and Amasis, too, was taken back. But as he took up the little rose-red slipper and admired the delicate workmanship and the tiny of it, he felt that the girl for whose foot it was made must indeed be one of the loveliest in the world. He had a huge foot fetish. He was kind of real boner, and he was all excited about it. Indeed, Amasis the Pharaoh was so moved by what happened that he issued a decree. He said, let my messengers go forth through all the cities of the Delta, and if need be into Upper Egypt, to the very borders of my kingdom. Let them take with them this rose red slipper, which the divine bird of Horus has brought to me, and let them declare that her from whose foot this slipper came shall be the bride of the Pharaoh. Then the messengers prostrated themselves, crying, Life, health, strength be to the Pharaoh! Pharaoh has spoken, his command shall be obeyed! And then later, quietly, they're like, fucking weirdo. Fucking, seriously? Just whoever fits in that? Fucking dumb. So they set forth from Memphis and went by way of Heliopolis and Tanis and Canopus until they came to Necrotus and Batacus and Here they heard of the rich merchant Caroxus and how he had brought the beautiful Greek girl in the slave market and how he was lavishing all his wealth upon her as if she had been a princess put in care by the gods, put in his care by the gods. So they went into the great house beside the Nile and found Rodopis in the quiet garden beside the pool. When they showed her the rose-red slipper, she cried out in surprise that it was hers. She held out her foot so that they could see how well it fitted her. And she bade one of the slave girls fetch the pair to it, which she had kept carefully in memory of her strange adventure with the eagle. Then the messengers knew that this was the girl whom Pharaoh had sent them to find, and they knelt before her and said, The good God Pharaoh Amasis, life, health, strength be to him, uh, bids you come with all speeds to his palace at Memphis. 
There you should be treated with all honor and given a high palace in his royal house of women, for he believes that Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris, sent the eagle to bring the rose-red slipper and cause him to search for you. Such a command could not be disobeyed. Rhodopis bade farewell, farewell to Caraxos, who was torn between joy at her good fortune and sorrow at his loss, and set out for Memphis. And then... Before arriving in Memphis, Bobby, that big dick baboon, popped out of the bushes and he screamed, Bitch, I'm going to get your guts out. That's exactly what he did. And he ate her fucking guts. And she, he ripped her heart out and he tossed it to that dirty hell beast, Amit the Gobbler. Like, blah, 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 fuck, fuck the story. And then they ceased to exist. The end. So yeah, so that's, uh, no, nah, that's not how the story ended. <laughs> I, thought about, I thought about doing that to you guys, but I'm not going to do that to you guys. I wish it ended with that much absurdity. No, Redops is set up for Memphis, made it there safe and sound. And then it ends with, uh, and when Amasa saw her beauty, he was sure that the gods had sent her to him. He did not merely take her to his royal house for women. He made her his queen and the royal lady of Egypt. And they lived happily together for the rest of their lives and died a year before the coming of Cambyses the Persian. Uh, King, I think I'm saying his name wrong, but King Cambyses Cambys the second conquered Egypt in uh, 522 BC. Uh, and his conquest ended Egypt's 26th dynasty, began his 27th dynasty known as the Persian period. Uh, so what do we learn about Egypt? In that story. I don't know. Uh, sometimes the gods favor you, I guess. I just wanted to provide another example of a story from ancient Egypt. And honestly, uh, this, this, that was as good as any of them. Uh, I mean, what, what do we know about Rhodopsis other than she was a slave? Nothing. We don't even know if she was uh, treated badly or not. We don't know if she was an asshole or not. Uh, we know she was pretty. She was once a slave. Uh, then she becomes a you know, great royal wife, you know, like, kind of like a queen. I feel like this story was probably told to uh, poor little girls unhappy with their lot in life, right? Just, oh, don't be sad. You could be a queen when you grow up. Someone could swoop in, make everything awesome for you, and you'll never have to work or do anything for yourself ever. But it won't happen unless you're pretty. So only value your looks. That's all that matters is be pretty. Isn't that a story we still tell to little girls? I think we do. It's been a pet peeve of mine for a long time having a daughter. Uh, I, think, I think it's time we throw a lot of these old fairy tales in the trash. Write, write some news stories. For a new world. No more, no more Cinderella tales. tales. Uh, are we going to finally move on <laughs> from the same tales we've been telling, you know, from like 2,500 years ago? I hope so. Anywho, that was our wild look into the ancient gods uh, of Egypt. Uh, if you really liked it, I, I encourage you to do further exploring on your own. There is so much more you can find. Uh, 1,500 to 2,000 different Egyptian gods. Massive empire that lasted for, uh, you know, roughly 6,000 years altogether in unified and ununified form. Uh, first settlements in the Nile Valley thought to have begun, you know, over 7,000 years ago, seven, 8,000 years ago. I know that there are so many other places we could have gone in the suck, but we needed, you know, uh, other full sucks to do any of those roads justice. We could do multiple additional full sucks on various aspects of the ancient Egyptian civilization. How did their political structure work? Who were some of their famous pharaohs? How did they uh, do battle? Who did they do battle with? Even if we don't do more Egyptian sucks, I do feel like we're going to learn more about Egypt going forward. You know, like a non-Egyptian sucks, like sucks on Alexander the Great. Anytime we go to the era when the Egyptian empire was around, I feel like we're going to be almost bound to run into them. Uh, no matter how much uh, Egypt we do suck, there's always going to be a lot we don't know. It's still very mysterious, which I think is part of the appeal with Egypt, right? These stories are weird. These gods are weird. And, and nobody really knows exactly, you know, what went on back then. I mean, we have these old tombs, these hieroglyphics, and, you know, the, thanks to the um, Rosetta Stone, they're able to, you know, translate these, uh, these, these old, you know, hieroglyphics off of the walls. But they didn't write the way we write now. It's obviously not the same kind of narratives. And uh, who knows how much was just lost to time, 
lost to marauders, you know, destroying old artifacts. There could be some important stories that could have shed light on a lot of this that we'll just, we'll just never find. Um, you know, it's part of, part of the appeal, though. Yeah, so much mystery. All those big pyramids, giant tombs, so many artifacts, all the mummies. What, what exactly was going on back then? There are thousands of places on Earth, Earth that baffle even the most learned experts, but, but nothing else quite like Egypt. Uh, let's take a few looks back at their gods, learn something new in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Bobby, the bull of the baboons, a.k.a. the chief of the baboons. Bobby had a mighty, mighty phallus used as the mast on a ferry that carried souls of the Egyptian dead to the field of reeds. That is the weirdest sailboat ever. Number two, with possibly 2,000 ancient gods, we touched on around 1% of them. And in that 1%, uh, we found incest, cannibalism, family murder, and so much more. No wonder so many of us meat sacks are so crazy. The stories we've been telling for thousands of years are so crazy. Number three, the ancient Egyptian empire in various forms remained an empire for 30 centuries. The Roman Republic lasted just 500 years or so. The Mongolian empire lasted around 160 years. The British empire, largest in the history of the world, lasted as an empire at its height from around 90 years. Uh, you know, and really no, like wasn't a true empire for more than 300 years. The United States hasn't even been around for three centuries. Imagine 30 centuries. Egypt really was something special. One of the earliest, also one of the longest lasting civilizations in the history of the world. Number four, Osiris and Nimrod may be the one and the same. Didn't expect that connection to be made today. Number five, something new, mummies. We didn't really talk much about it today, but mummification, an important part of Egyptian religion had to prepare those bodies to travel to the field of reeds. Uh, mummification practiced throughout most of early Egyptian history. The earliest mummies from prehistoric times probably were accidental. By chance, dry sand and air, since Egypt has almost no measurable rainfall, you know, preserved some bodies buried in shallow pits dug into the sand. Then mummification at some point became an intentional act. Using special processes, the Egyptians removed all moisture from the body, leaving only a dried form that would not easily decay. It was important in their religion to preserve the dead body in a lifelike manner, as lifelike as possible. So successful were they doing that, that today we can view the mummified body of an Egyptian and have a good idea of what he or she looked like 3,000 years ago. After death, the pharaohs of Egypt usually were mummified and buried in elaborate tombs. Members of the nobility and officials also received the same treatment, occasionally common people. However, the process was a very expensive one beyond the means of most. For religious reasons, animals also mummified. The sacred bulls from the early dynasties had their own cemetery at Saqqara. Baboons, birds, crocodiles uh, also had great religious significance, sometimes mummified, especially in later dynasties. Over one million animal mummies have been found in Egypt overall, uh, many of which are cats. And why? This is all done uh, for the humans to keep one's souls intact. Remember those nine components? The ancient Egyptians believed that when someone died, their soul left their body. The soul would then return and be reunited with the body after being buried. However, the soul needed to be able to find and recognize the body in order to live forever. So it needed to, to look like they looked in life. And all the animals, all the artifacts also buried, all the animals mummified. Well, that was so uh, one's home could be recreated so they could find their old animal friends, find their old stuff uh, in the Egyptian afterlife. Time suck. Top five takeaways. And that's all for Egypt today. I had a lot of fun with that one. I uh, hope you liked it. I hope I did a better job than on the Greek and the Norse gods. Hope I, I hope I learned from those. These, these ones are, man, they're tricky to put together. 
Uh, hope we did an okay job. Thanks for the continued ratings and reviews. Thanks for letting us know if the show is on the right or wrong path. Much appreciated. Uh, fresh merch in the store, badmagicmerch.com. As always, every week, awesome wandering eyes tea. Much more than uh, teas in the store, if you do want to take a peek over there. Uh, and soon, we're going to have a whole new chapter coming to the store this summer. The Is We Dumb chapter. Whole new weekly show coming your way. You're going to have an every Wednesday show. Just some some comedy, some escapism. More details in a trailer coming soon. Yeah, buddy. Uh, thank you again to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe, Paisley, Bit Elixir, Logan, and Kate Keith at the Spicy Club. Running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Thanks to all those involved in keeping the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group moderated by the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, and her all-seen eyes. Thanks for keeping that page growing and fun. Uh, we also have a Discord channel you can link over to from the Time Suck app. Uh, the Facebook group, over 20,000 cult members now. So that's pretty fucking cool. That's a, that's a, nice, that's a nice number. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we're going to take a break from Cannibals and Gods and investigate the amazing story of a truly international man and his son, Bruce, and Brandon Lee. It's karate time! Uh, Bruce Lee, perhaps one of the greatest martial artists of all time, definitely one of the most famous, if not the most famous, uh, would be known as the dragon before his untimely death in 1973 at the age of 33, while his son, who would also die young at only 28, would be known to the world as the crow. Both men would find fame in Hong Kong, China, America, and elsewhere, staking out their legendary status in nearly every nation worldwide. Bruce was known for his personal philosophy and intense work ethic, became China's most popular action film star, smashing box office records in every movie he'd make. He would also teach Westerners, including Hollywood celebrities, the style of martial arts that he invented with famous clients like Chuck Norris, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, love that connection, uh, Steve McQueen. Brandon's rise to fame was different as uh, early on, he always seemed to fall under his father's immense shadow. Then in 1994, Brandon had the opportunity to distinguish himself as an acting force in the underground comic book movie that became a huge cult classic, The Crow. Uh, we go on to become a, you know, uh, 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 he could have gone on to become a big deal in Hollywood, but he was tragically killed in a freak accident on set, forcing the cast and crew to both grieve over their friend and colleague and also finish the movie without their lead actor. The Lee family story is one of unprecedented highs, some of the lowest lows. Some believe the family was cursed. Others believe both men were executed by members of the Chinese mafia. Is that true? Well, join us next week to find out for yourself who were Bruce and Brandon Lee, the dragon and the crow. Uh, let's get to some great messages now today, uh, right now on today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update is a super cute one. Coming in from Top Shelf Sack, kick-ass dad, Mr. Christopher, who writes, All praise Lord Suckmaster. I discovered your show just a month ago. I've been running through them as fast as I can. Can't get enough. I'm only on episode 60, and it's just the best thing I've heard. I'm your age. I get almost every joke you make. I'm loving it. My seven-year-old son is a Slenderman fan and, all, and a fan of all that is creepy. He enjoyed learning the origins of Slenderman in that episode. He's at the age where YouTube people and shows like yours are where the cool people are. I was hoping you could give him a little shout out and say something cool like you always seem to do. It would make him extremely happy to hear his name coming from you on your show. He promises you he will send in a drawing of Slenderman and his version of Bojangles just as soon as he can. Thank you so much for what you do. Know that you've made a little boy happier than you might imagine. His name is Liam Christopher. Stay badass and keep on sucking. Well, hello, Liam. Boy, does your dad have a lot of explaining and apologizing ahead of him if he lets you listen to too much time suck. You're going to want to skip uh, Albert Fish. Uh, you're going to want to skip uh, Toy Box. Oh. Uh, you're going to want to skip um, 
Uh, that, oh man, there's so many creeps you're going to want to skip. Uh, I think today's okay. Uh, hope you skipped last week. Ooh, Yakim. Uh, love that you love the creepy stuff, my man. I did too when I was a kid. I was gobbling up Stephen King novels in grade school like Amit gobbles up hearts in Egypt. Well, st- stay cool, young Liam. Uh, stay gold, pony, bo- pony boy. I think that outsider's reference usually works better for you than I did earlier when I used it today. I always want to say stay golden now because I think I think Run the Jewels says that. Anyway, Liam, I'm looking forward to those drawings. Can't wait for you to send them in. I'm sure they're going to be amazing. Next up, more art. Love art. Uh, amazing sucker artist Brian Christensen writes in saying, it would really make my whole year to make a painting specific to one of the podcast historical events or figures. Do you have one in mind you'd like to see? I bow to Bojangles' infinite wisdom. I would be most honored for the opportunity to create something that the community gets a laugh out of. Thanks again for giving me something great to listen to whilst tro- uh, toiling away on my art. And again, during my boring-ass day job, uh, your story is an inspiration to me. I hope to build off that to accomplish my dream of quitting my day job to make art full-time. Uh, your podcast has been a huge help get me through this gigantic, festering butthole of a year. Oh, well said. And I hope to spread the suck to as many honorable meat sacks as I can. Your friend and curiosity, Brian Christensen. Brian, uh, I hope you got my email. I sent you an email. Uh, your art is awesome. Uh, the rest of you meat sacks can check it out at bjc-art.com. bjc-art.com. So good, man. Uh, would love a Nimrod Osiris mashup. I know that's quite a challenge, but I know you kill it. I uh, would love to commemorate the, the the meeting of our God and the old ancient Egyptian God. Would love to see Nimrod in ancient Egyptian pharaoh-like form. So stay curious, keep creating. We'll get through 2020 and hail Nimrod. Uh, Zachary Wyckoff's wife got Cummins Laud so hard recently. <laughs> this kills me. Uh, from last week's episode, Zachary writes, you got my wife. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, Suckmaster Deluxe. I'm typing this right now, dying with laughter. My wife and I were just talking to my dad about Yahim <laughs> uh, sick fuck. And she starts telling him about his arterial sized dick veins. And I started losing my mind laughing. She took a second, but looked at me and said, God damn it. He got me. I just wanted you to know that for three years of sucking that you you, you did it. <laughs> uh, this is the first for her. And in front of my dad, it makes it even better. You rock. Time suck forever. Your faithful servant, Zach. P.S. My last name is Polish, so suck it. Uh, love it. Love it, Zach. Uh, hate that you're Polish. Uh, you and I both know that makes you a real life monster. But other than that, awesome. I love that she thought <laughs> that Yahim, that all of his veins from his legs changed and went to feed his uh, copious amounts of semen producing uh, dick. Uh, that same nonsense sent top shelf sack Matt Coffee to the floor and freaked out his coworkers. <laughs> this made me laugh so hard. Matt writes, Dear Master Sucker, Lucifina's crystal butt plug. <laughs> Been following your comedy since I first discovered Pandora, and when I heard you had a podcast from your Drinking Bros interview, I was quickly hooked. Been trying to spread the suck for about a year now. I'm usually, thank you, I'm usually better at sniffing out when your fun facts turn into bullshit, but this episode got me good. I was listening to your... Uh, Yahim Kroll episode this Tuesday at work. When I got to your detour on his leg problems, I busted out laughing. My warehouse coworkers turned to stare at me <laughs> and courtesy dictated that I turn off my headphones before you said that none of it was true uh, and explained it to them. All I could gasp out between giggles was something like, there's a serial killer, a cannibalist rapist, jerked off so much. It changed the circulation in his legs. Couldn't walk straight. Jerked himself into a permanent limp. That'll get you some weird looks. Uh, It didn't help that you followed up with his main vein being the size of a major artery. I was almost rolling in the ground. Also didn't help that apparently I laughed like a cartoon villain. Even more weird looks. 
Then you had to ruin it by saying it was all bullshit. Can you imagine a world where there is a visual indicator of chronic masturbation? You see some dude limping around with shifty eyes and chicklet chicklet teeth and think, yeah, that dude chokes chicken way too much. Uh, But no such luck. Ended up having to let everyone within hearing distance know that I was cackling at something fake. So now I'm a liar as well as a psycho. My pristine reputation as the gentleman of the warehouse is now tarnished. Thank you for that. And thought you'd enjoy this. I was taking a two-week anti-terrorism course in Kuwait one time when one of the instructors let it slip that he used to be Timothy McVeigh's prison guard. Yeah, you read that right. The classroom's collective reaction was, wait, what? And you know what he said about McVeigh? Not a fucking thing. It was basically, back when I used to be Timothy McVeigh's prison guard, what? Yeah, back in 99. So anyway, the common types of homemade explosives are, and that was it. That was all we could get out of him. So your episode on him helped me put to rest what was previously a mystery wrapped in an enigma taco. (laughs) Thanks for that too. Love what you do. Makes the long hours go by a lot quicker. You may not remember, but your constant Michael McDonalding also helped me laugh uh, my way through a pretty scary surgery. But aren't all vasectomies scary? Oh, that's right. Uh, Sorry for the short email. Keep on sucking, Matt. Love it, Matt. Fantastic message. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Uh, Crazy about McVeigh's prison guard. Yeah, you'd think he'd have some stories there. Right. Uh, and also, thank you for your service. Uh, hail Nimrod. Uh, hail Nimrod. I'm glad things worked out with your balls. And uh, that really did make me laugh, just picturing that entire scenario you just painted. And now we will end on something sweet. Kind and fine sucker Michael Day O'Donnell has a question for me. He writes, what would Dan do? I'm a longtime spacer, longtime fan of the stand-up. I met you in D.C. during the Flat Earth Tour. I was so nervous. and It was a first semi-large venue I had been to in years. I just started my anti-anxiety medication. I'm a self-defined Christian, but not actively part of a church organization. Wife cheating on you with your pastor tends to discourage that. Yay, yay. So I'm divorced and for many years just trying to be civil to my ex. I was one amicable motherfucker. Uh, My dad has tried to put in the Christian perspective of don't you want her to go to heaven? Yes, but it will be huge and I'll be on the other side. (laughs) Then I heard your album. Not sure if I can call it that or stand. Yeah, album's fine. Maybe on the problem. And you said you loved your ex and her new husband and suddenly a light bulb went on. Uh, I do still and always will love her. I pledge that before my family and God, just because she and I are different people doesn't change that we have children and history together. Now we're really close friends and I feel such peace. Sorry for the long letter. Just wanted to know the good you put out in the world. In the meantime, I will try and resume my Christian path. Maybe first ask, what would Dan do? Uh, sincerely, your loyal spaces are slowly evolving meat sack, Michael Dale O'Donnell. Well, thank you, Michael. Sorry you had a rough experience, real rough one uh, with your ex and your faith. And man, good for you for being able to put all that behind you. You know, as far as hate goes with your ex, yeah, no, I know it can be real, real hard not to hate him in a situation like that. But um, I feel like kindness usually wins in those situations, right? Like if, if you don't have kids together, then maybe, you know, you can just go your separate ways. I actually do kind of advocate just saying goodbye, moving on. No need to stay in the life of someone who's uh, hurt you in that kind of way. But with kids, and you still have to raise them together. It's not their fault that uh, either parent did anything. And I think the best thing you can do is just try to, uh, you know, not throw the other parent under the bus as hard as that may be in times. And because frankly, and also the kids just don't want to hear it, you know, even if it's deserved. When they get old enough, they're going to have questions. And I think then you can be honest with them with the answers. I think they deserve some honesty, but they need, I think, to be shielded from as much as the pain of a divorce as possible. You know, angst between you and your ex definitely gives them pain. So, you know, you do your best to push your pride aside. Uh, best thing to do. Not always easy. Uh, remember the best times you had. Remember the, the love that was there once and give some of that love to the little ones. And then in your private moments, if you need to hit a punching bag or have a strong drink, Think whatever fucking hateful shit you want to think, then then you do that. You let it out of your system in a healthy way. Uh, I like that my divorce led me to becoming a better person. I like to think of the positives out of a negative situation. Better dad, better husband, my uh, wife, Lindsay, 
the, the pain led me to having a, a life I appreciate more. Don't take for granted certain things anymore. Uh, but I didn't have to uh, allow all of that. It's just like you didn't have to, you know, become amicable and then more than amicable to your ex. You know, either one of us could have given into bitterness, hate. And then uh, if I had done that, I sure as shit wouldn't be sitting in this uh, chair recording the show right now. So good luck to you, brother. I hope you find uh, the God you need again. And if that God is Jesus, then peace be with you and praise Jesus. And thanks for your messages, everyone, in today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everyone. If you took away one thing from the show, make sure and keep your heart light, okay? Got to keep it light. Uh, you don't want some big dick baboon or some other monster eating you into oblivion. And also, keep on sucking. So, I mean, we knew it's a boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that we have. Yeah, it's got, uh, got to take them to the to the field of uh, the reeds. And the souls and stuff are in yeah. the boat. The, the souls okay. come in the boat. The souls are in the boat. What's the weight capacity of one soul though? It's real light because they're light. That's why they got there. Okay, so you can fit a lot. You can fit a lot of souls. Okay. I don't know, well, uh, like a couple tons of souls. Couple, couple tons of souls. Okay, and then we yeah. have the baboon. Yeah, the baboon's got to take them to the because they can't just you know they can't walk to the field of reeds. There's like some water, so they got to right. they got to get there ferry wise. But okay, even with light souls, uh-huh. you have a couple tons of them. Yep, that dick. Like not, it's, it's got to be. How much blood is in this baboon? Because that's that penis right, has right. to be able to steer around tons. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Weight. It's got to be a really big dick. The dick has to be bigger than the baboon. Okay, so you're thinking like like a, like a hundred to one ratio. Oh, like the, the, bab- the baboon's he's like an ant, okay. and, and his dick is like an elephant. I, I I ran out of page. I was drawn. I need I need more pages for. Well, we got to get it worked out because you know we got to move on to the chisel next. Okay, I mean I see how this, I see how this makes sense though. Right, right, like, right. I mean that. Uh-huh. I mean, how, I mean, how else are you gonna get to heaven? You don't. You, if you don't have a big dick baboon, <laughs> wait. Problem solved. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.